Fault Lines. Live from the divided states of America, sitting atop the transmission tower of truth, taking down hypocrisy one lie at a time. In the ladies' corner, my trolls call me Moscow Mary, but I'm your pierogi princess, your journalist extraordinaire, American Farron. And in the left corner, I am your indefatigable, your ever-vigilant, your burning ember in the darkness, your political analyst, Jamal Thomas. Which means you're listening to Fault Lines with Thomas and Franzak. Oh, man. What a day yesterday, huh? I know. I know. A, a big events taking big place. Big events. Um, what was your favorite? Madeline Albright dropping dead at 84. You know what? It was almost like a heavenly drone came down and just Ended stopped her life. Like the million of Iraqi children, you yeah. know? Yeah. Oh, but just be accurate. Five hundred thousand. Five hundred thousand. I'm sorry. Five hundred thousand. Five hundred thousand. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> sorry. We, we don't. We don't want to embellish. It's just five hundred thousand dead kids. Yeah. I, I, did, I, did you see the hospital episode where they were talking about that? Where the guy? I remember some of the Iraqi doctors basically saying, "I know how to cure that kid. I know how to treat that kid, but I don't have the supplies to do it because of the sanctions that they basically were putting on." And even like the smell of the hospital smelling like oil because. They had, like, oil, and so they, whatever they can use derivatives of oil, they could do. Mm-hmm. But many things you can't use a derivative of oil for, in which case, kid after kid, child after child, loses their life. Madeline Albright's response? What was her response, Fern? Madeline Albright, hey, it seems that a lot of 500,000 kids have died. I mean, I mean, is it, do you think that that's okay, Madeline Albright? Well, I think it was worth it. Okay. Yeah. Let's go to a Burger King commercial now. And let's, you know, no no (laughs) issue with that comment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There was actually another one, too, from the gray zone where she was at a book signing Uh and a bunch of Serbians. Mind you, I'm going to do my eulogy to the real eulogy to Madeline Albright at 15 a.m. You are not going to want to miss it. Um, But she was at a book signing. And I'll say this in case you're not here the next hour. Madeleine Albright dropped dead the same exact day that she ordered the bombing of Serb- uh, bombing on Serbia. The same exact day. How fitting. Like God got involved. Right. But, um, so she was at a book signing and a bunch of Serbians came and started protesting her. And here you can see her. She's like this tiny little bo- bag of bones. And she's like, get away from me. Get away from me. <laughs> and then finally, you actually hear her go, you dirty Serbian, you dirty no, Serbs. No, she didn't. Or no, yeah, she says like, you dirty Serbs or you disgusting Serbs. And it's like, gee, just when we didn't think you were no, racist. No, she didn't. She said it. Oh, yeah. It's from the gray zone. I'll have dirty to see if I can Serbs. find the clip. Oh, so calls damn. them dirty Serbs. Yep. How dare they feel some kind of way about bombing their country like that. Oh, yeah. How dare oh, yeah. you feel some kind of way about that? Oh, yeah. And... You know what? May the 500 Iraqi children that she thought were worth it punt her ass out of the gates of heaven and send her ass down to hell and show her where her seat is next to. Henry Kissinger, G.W. Bush, Dick Cheney. May she save them all a juice box for when they arrive. Pretty much. Pretty much. Uh, Let's get to your headlines this morning. In your COVID news, the chief executives of American Airlines, United Airlines, Delta Airlines, and other carriers Wednesday urged U.S. President Joe Biden to end a federal mask mandate on airplanes and international pre-departure testing requirements. The airline executives, including the chairman of Southwest Airlines and JetBlue CEO, said said in a letter that the restrictions are no longer aligned with the realities of the current epidemiological environment. 
The Biden administration this month opted to extend current COVID-19 mask requirements at airports, train stations, rideshare vehicles, and other transit modes through April 18th. The order was set to expire on March 18th. In your national news, Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson defended her sentencing practices and her views on expanding the Supreme Court, among other topics. During a second day of sometimes sharp questioning from members of the Senate Judiciary Committee, as hearings continue over her historic nomination to be the first black woman on the Supreme Court. At one point, the judge said, if she is confirmed, that she will rescue or recuse herself in a case before the court about the use of race in the admissions process at Harvard University. The Harvard Law graduate has been a member of the college boards of overseers since 2016. After three years of complaints and debate, the Army has scrapped its move to have a physical fitness test that is gender and age neutral and will now allow men and older soldiers to pass while meeting some reduced standards. The change, however, will affect only the regular fitness tests that soldiers take annually. Qualifying for certain Army jobs, particularly more demanding combat positions or specialties, such as Ranger School, will continue to require that everyone, regardless of age or gender, must pass the same fitness tests and standards. In your international news, U.S. President Joe Biden and Western allies opened the first of three summits focused on increasing pressure on Russian President Vladimir Putin over his war in Ukraine while tending to the economic and security fallout spreading across Europe and the world. Over the course of today, the European diplomatic capital is hosting an emergency NATO summit, as well as gathering a group of seven industrialized nations and a summit of the 27 members of the European Union. Biden will attend all three meetings and plans to hold a news conference by the end of the day. North Korea launched an intercontinental ballistic missile for the first time since 2017 and a major escalation of tensions over its weapons program. The launch ended a self-imposed moratorium on testing ICBMs and nuclear weapons that North Korea declared in 2018 ahead of the diplomatic talks with former President Donald Trump that ultimately collapsed. The country is barred from such tests under United Nations Security Council resolutions. Experts say the weapon tests are meant to force the international community to recognize Kim Jong-un's regime as a nuclear power and lift sanctions that have devastated the country's economy. Your holidays today. It is National Cocktail Day. Boy, could we all use one. National Chocolate Covered Raisins Day or Raisinets Day. International Day for the Right to the Truth Concerning Gross Human Rights Violations and for the Dignity of Victims. How fitting the day after that bag of bones matter and Albright drops dead. Those are your headlines for March 24th, 2022. And see, everybody's all like, oh, no, we have to just honor the dead. We need to honor. No, no, no. And I, Anya, uh, how do you say your last name? Anya? I'm Parent Pill. Had the best tweet about it. She goes, no, 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 no. You honor the dead like your your aunt that had a drinking problem. You don't honor a warmonger and somebody that killed thousands of innocent little kids. That's right. And said it was worth it. Yeah. You don't honor those people. No. But look, if I don't care if she was a great grandma. I don't care if she was a great parent and friend. Don't care when I Oda. The issue is when you have this kind of comparative, let's say, um, appraisal of an individual's life. And it's like, okay, great grandma. Okay, she was nice to the dogs. Oh, yeah, she thought 500,000 kids dying Hitler was worth it. puppies, okay? Where, where do you stop, right? Yeah. You stop at that part. That's the part that, that has more sway than anything else from the context of her life. Unless she killed more than 500,000 kids or unless she got more than X number of people killed. Otherwise, that should be the thing where you stop on 
and you are aghast by, apoplectic even. But they're Iraqi kids. They're not American kids, so it's worth it. Get out of here. Get out of here. And then you're going to tell me, cry over the issue of Ukraine. All of these people are dying in Ukraine. Look at this baby. 500,000. And you will not hear that in U.S. media. What you're going to hear in U.S. media is, well, she was a strong advocate for NATO. She was a strong advocate for U.S. values, et cetera, et cetera. But what does that mean in practice? Well, the best, though, is you have Hillary Clinton commenting on her death. Do you want to know what that that corrupt, corrupt Clintonite said? So many people around the world are alive and living better lives because of her service. Whatever. Really? Whatever. Who? Please find them for me. There was actually a tweet from an Iraqi Iraqi guy yesterday who said Mm -hmm. that, you know, all of the sanctions that they imposed on Iraq, he was a kid that grew up in Iraq that had asthma. And he said that he almost died multiple times because they refused to give them asthma medications. Wow. This is the kind of thing that our sanctions do, folks. And again, how fitting is it that, you know, as all this Ukrainian stuff is going on, the the anniversary of her ordering the bombing of Serbia, mm-hmm. Scott Ritter was on the gray zone yesterday. We're going to get him tomorrow to talk about this exact thing, um, you know, because he was heavily involved with the Iraq and weapons of mass destruction and that whole charade. Um, but he basically said yesterday this amazing story about him with Madeleine Albright. He was very, very intertwined with her and having yeah. to deal with her. And he was like, I was basically like the patsy, you know. That's and, what he said. Yep. And it's it's very, very interesting. And um, but yeah, may God not rest her soul. Yeah. And look, Ritter would know um, weapons of mass destruction, whistleblower. Um, he was the guy that basically was. He, he has interesting stories around that in regards to him trying to prevent a war. But they were basically trying to use him to provoke a war in Iraq. It's very interesting stuff when he's talking about it. But yeah, man, that story is utterly astonishing. Um, And yeah, it is going to be a lot of, um, you know, flag waving. Um, She's the first woman secretary of state. They're going to hit that pretty heavily. Don't care. Yeah, don't care. Don't care. Her vagina does not make one iota difference to me about whether or not or her getting those people killed. Um, And yeah, I mean— for the next few weeks or so, they're going to have all sorts of funerals, et cetera. Fair enough. I care more about the reality of it. Um, and this isn't me being a hater. This is just me pointing out that when you get that many people killed. No, this is you being a truther. Yeah, there should be condemnation associated with it, not fake applause. I've never believed that. When Lee was here um, on Fault Lines, I remember I was here, and I think it was one of the Koch brothers died. And I think I no. said something to the effect of, you know, if, if some alien species is looking at this planet, um, from the darkness of space, it got one increment brighter now that he is no longer here. Lee got pissed off at that. It was like, oh, man, we can't, we should honor the dead, et cetera, et cetera. I've never believed Hell that no. we should just randomly honor the dead. Well, my grandfather dropped dead. I had the exact same point of view. The guy was a drunk. He was the worst person that I've ever come across. Why are you people acting like that? It's not true. Same thing here. Well, but but again, there's a difference though, like like Anya said, mm-hmm. honoring your 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 drunk aunt yes. versus honoring a war criminal. Yes. That never saw her day in court. A ever. dramatically big difference. Not even that saw her day in court, wasn't even condemned for it. You say you meaning you answer something like that on television, national television. And there is not this kind of mass condemnation from all of these sectors of the American public saying, Whoa, why do you think that's worth it? Even if you had to do it. And by the way, it wasn't worth it because we still ended up going to war with Iraq mm-hmm. in the next administration, in which case he ends up getting a million people killed. So it's like, how is it worth it if you still ended up 
having to go to war. And let's be very clear. The entire purpose of sanctions is not to go after the leader of a country. I know they tell you that all the time. Oh, we're putting sanctions in order to get rid of this leader. It's not that. What they want is for the public to be in such dire straits that the public rises up to get rid of the person who's in charge. Mm -hmm. That's why the sanctions don't hit the leaders. That's why the sanctions often hit the individuals. You don't have enough food. You don't have enough supplies. You don't have enough medical supplies, et cetera, et cetera. The population gets very angry. And the idea being that the population will tilt its perspective against the government in office in hopes of removing that government. And how many times has that worked? I am unaware of it working at all. You couldn't even count on one yeah, hand. I'm unaware of it working. And if anything, it actually makes the people hold on to their government stronger. Yes. Yes. It does the complete opposite. And here's why the United States does it is because they know that that's what would hurt us. However, these countries are not run the same way that our country is, where it's all of our oligarchs, if they got sanctioned, they would actually feel the brunt of it. That's what the whole joke is with with Russia right now, where they're sanctioning, like Biden's going to, they say he's going to slap more 100, uh, 100 sanctions today yeah. on members of the Duma. And it's like, that's not going to do anything. Yeah. Because their politicians aren't run and they don't run their their stuff like the way that we do here. Corrupt is all hell. Yeah. You know, at least when when Putin, and again, say what you will about him, when he got in, the first thing he did is he told them, hey guys, your gravy train's over. Everybody knows this if yeah. you actually know Russian history. Yeah. But that's the problem is that the United States doesn't. The United States just has, has been told since the Cold War, Russia bad, Russia bad. You know, they're communists. You still have Americans thinking that Russia is a communist country. What did Lloyd Austin call it? The Soviet Union by accident, which gets across in his head, meaning NATO shouldn't exist at this point. And yet in their heads, I think they still look at it through that very specific Cold War lens. Um, despite the fact it's not a communist country, to your point, um, not just it's not a communist country. Like I said, NATO shouldn't exist. No, absolutely not. There's there's no use for it because, again, it was to strictly keep the Soviet Union at bay and the Soviet Union is no more. And if you actually look at there's, you know, because I, I follow a lot of Russian people on Telegram and stuff like that. And, you know, they are petrified of of NATO coming forward because not not because they think that they're going to get attacked or something. They know what NATO represents, mm -hmm. a United States imperialist regime. And imperialism sounds like an old, dirty word from, you know, way back in the colonial times. No, folks, it's still happening. Look at Puerto Rico. Look at Guam. Look at all of these places that we're, we're occupying. And it's, and again, like, you know, Caleb Maupin actually yesterday has been impressing me more and more because he's got a lot of really great lectures on his YouTube. He's always impressed me. And he's and he's, he's well, so good. Because again, it's it's when you work with him and they're like your friends are like, oh, okay, like, yeah. But then like when you actually start looking into people and what he's written. Yeah. And, you know, and he says he is a, a basically a communist socialist. Yeah. Um, he's very open about it. Very open about it. But he has a great speech about the fall of Rome and why Rome fell. And he said that basically what was happening is the the world was moving forward while Rome was holding everybody back because they were basically a slave economy right. where slaves would be working and they had no end in sight, whereas the rest of the world started, you know, serfs and feudalism mm -hmm. where you were working towards a goal and you were able to get out of that goal. And the fact that Rome kept going around and not making its own natural resources and would go and attack these places for their natural resources, eventually 
the whole thing went bust because they couldn't do anything themselves. And you think about it and it's like, oh yeah, that's kind of what we did with Cuba. That's what we did with Puerto Rico. That's what we did with Iraq and Iran. I mean, like you could start naming all the countries where we've gone after their natural resources yeah. just alone on that fact, yeah. you know, and- Even those coups. I mean, Iran, for example, the coup in Iran um, was between Brits and the United States because Iran decided, hey, maybe we should start using the oil reserves for the people in the country itself. Right. In which case, they were like, whoa, whoa, they're attacking the oil exports. We got to right. get rid of those. And it was that stuff. I mean, even in South America, the whole, what is it, the, um, United Fruit stuff, where they were basically overthrowing governments. You had situations where companies in the United States had full control over the various governments, over pretty much all of the industry, of bananas and whatnot, and basically used that control in order to, they were some cases where companies were paying workers in company bucks. Like it was right, yeah. that extensive. Like in regards to the level of control that our companies had on those countries. And then when the countries decided, hey, we don't like this. We need to have more control. Then the coups start. Like it's like you have them knocking over one government after the next, after the next, killing various leaders in those countries um, when those countries are basically trying to rebuff it. If, if I remember correctly, you even had the CIA bombing. Which country was? I forget the name of the country. It was either Chile or um, one of the other ones. It, it's been so long since I've... Um, read the book by, I believe it was Chalmers Johnson. But either way, supplies, I mean, resources, basically. Mm -hmm. And the entire point, in many respects, we need those resources. We need to do whatever we need to do to get it. If those governments aren't going to help us with it, we're going to take it. And the dirty secret is that authoritarian governments are far easier to work with. Meaning when you have a situation where the government says, hey, we don't want to give you those resources because the public is backing us, then we don't want to give it to you. Well, that's more complicated. If you have a dictator in office, which we were perfectly willing to work with, especially in South America, well, they were hand that stuff over. Right. One individual to deal with. Well, I mean, you look at Nigeria, for example. Nigeria has some of the largest oil reserves there. Who is controlling it? Oh, Chevron, yeah. all, all these American companies in charge of this oil who don't even give the money back to these people. It's like, how could a country with so much natural resources and so so rich in money-wise and natural resources be one of the poorest countries in America or not in America, in the world. And and this is what it happens. And so again, like I, I, I watched a number of his lectures, but the one about Rome really, really, um, hit home. hit home because it, we're seeing this now. I mean, even he talks about how many of the founding fathers, they look to Rome and that's why you see Roman columns, like on the, the Lincoln Memorial and what have you. But again, and, you know, and even people are saying feudalism is slavery in the chat. Yes, I understand that. But the point was is that they were able to buy themselves out of slavery eventually. Whereas the Romans, they had it where it was just slavery. There is no chance of ever getting out of it. Once born a slave, always die a slave, you know. And that was the thing is, is how Rome was holding people back. And because, again, they were just going raping and pillaging places, give us your wheat, give us this, give us that, all roads to lead, lead to Rome. And what happens is when you have too many slaves and not enough leaders, the people eventually rise up, which is what happened. Yeah, there wasn't but, enough buy-in. But yeah, work. so, and that's where I think here, when you start seeing more and more of these bag of bones leaders like your Madeleine Albrights and your Henry Kissingers and all of them, when they start uh, croaking over here, um, people are going to start to wake up. I'm an, an, at eight fifteen. I'm going to play this this clip from a kid from Ohio State, and I wish we had college kids like this today who could ask these political leaders questions because we don't have. Now that we don't have kids that would do that today, kids aren't allowed to do that 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 today. Yeah. You had a kid from Ohio State asking her, 
Why is it that we're still funding and still giving bombs and weapons to Israel and Indonesia who are, you know, bombing the Palestinians when Iraq, we're bombing Iraq, but we're not bombing Israel when they're all doing the same thing? Why are we picking and choosing over, you know, basically picking who our political allies are? And I mean, the look of disdain that this, this woman has, I mean, she's, she's not, she doesn't, she has, she has resting B face to begin with. And the face that she gives this kid and then accuses him of asking this question, accusing him of being a Saddam Hussein sympathizer, and he fires back immediately. And folks, I'm a Purdue University grad. Our producer, Laith, is a Michigan grad. We hate, loathe, wish fireballs upon the university or the Ohio State University. Yes, I gave you homage. I said the Ohio State. But we hate people from that school. (laughs) Yeah. But this kid actually does it justice. Yeah, he does a good job. Yeah. Well, let's do this. Let's take a break. Let's go into the soapbox segment. You guys are listening to Fault Lines with Thomas and Friends. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with my co-host, Farron Franzak, coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. If you guys happen to find yourself in the D.C. area, you can catch us on radio at 105.5 FM and 1390 AM. We're also kicking around in Kansas City at 102.9 FM and 104.7 FM. If you guys are digging with Farron and I, putting down whatever platform you're consuming this content on, give us a like and share that audio or video. If you want to join in on the conversation, you can do so with a tweet. And of course, you can reach us by phone at 202-521-1320. Your engagement helps make this show what it is, so definitely don't be shy. Well, we've had several big stories yesterday. Of course, we had the Madeleine Albright dropping dead at 84, um, busting hell wide open. Jill as Byron mentioned. Clap. Yep, the starfish clap. <laughs> um, but we also had something else that was actually pretty profound. Vladimir Putin comes out. It says this. Let's play the clip. In the last few weeks, there were unlawful measures taken against Russia by a number of Western countries to freeze Russian assets. By doing this, the collective West has undermined the reliability of their currencies. So, right. So he continues with that statement because they didn't put the entire thing in English for whatever reason. I don't know why. And that's not even the most important part. The most important part in that speech, he basically says unfriendly nations from here on out We'll have to pay for gas in rubles. Now, there was a collective butt cheek puckering across Europe and the United States after he said this. But I kind of want to point to something. This is pragmatic and it is practical as all practical can be. It just makes good D sense. I don't know if I can say that word. Um, But I would say this. It makes all the sense in the world. All things being equal, there was basically an attack on the Russian economy. The entire point of the economic war was to basically put the ruble into free fall and create this kind of economic havoc in the country that will force a concession, meaning to stop or ceasefire or at the very least crash the Russian economy with the hopes that the people will rise up and get rid of Putin. I mean, you can look at the reporting on something like, oh, um, consternation is taking place in Russia. These are reporting that are taking place in the United States. I would say this stuff is wishful thinking more than anything else. But Putin has a very good point here. During the economic war or in this economic war, what the West did was basically steal Russian reserves. Right here. This is Fortune magazine or Fortune.com. The ruble lost half of its value against the dollar 
um, when it annexed Crimea, forcing Russia's central bank to spend $130 billion to stabilize the currency. Except, it turns out that Russian foreign reserve strategy had a major flaw. About half of the money was held overseas in foreign banks, and now Russia can't get to it. On Monday, the United States, Japan, and the European Union barred central bank from tapping into billions of foreign reserves Moscow had been saving up in their banks. Meaning, the money that Moscow had been saving up in other reserves, meaning in other currencies, let's say in dollars or yen or, for that matter, in euros, they no longer can get access to that. And because they can't get access to it, the entire point was to basically force a default. Now, that default never took place. And the Russian economy has basically been trying to pull itself um, together and reopening aspects of itself. But the most important thing with the ruble thing is, okay, fair enough. Why on earth would I accept a currency where I could never get the value of that currency back? You guys are basically stealing the reserves. You're keeping the currency. Okay, fair enough. We can't necessarily do anything about that. You can do that. You can sanction us and steal our money in this way. But we're not going to take your dollars. We're not going to take your euros. We're not going to take your yen when you're basically buying gas from us because we can't get the value for that money. Meaning, why would Russia continue to accept currencies whereby those home governments of those currencies can basically use those currencies as a weapon in order to take and keep value away from the Russian economy. No country would do or acquiesce to something like that. Putin's response, fair enough. From here on out, you pay us some rubles. Now, Europe is not going to like this. They're going to say, oh, you're trying to get around the sanctions. Yes, they're going to try to get around the sanctions because they don't consider those sanctions valid. From Russia's point of view, you created a geopolitical situation that basically created the context of the world to which we are in. And now all of you are trying to do something economically that you couldn't necessarily do militarily, and that is basically to destroy the Russian economy. From that standpoint, we are not going to accept your dollars. We're not going to accept your yen. And if anything, you're going to pay us some rubles. And the catch is, what is Europe going to do about this? And my point is, Europe is not going to have a choice. The fact of the matter is Biden is going to that NATO summit and he's going to try to get them to pass more sanctions. But the reality of it is Europe is in no position to deal with something like this and turn them down. I mean, keep in mind, the number of gas or the amount of gas that Europe was using over the course of the last several years has skyrocketed. And that gas is basically coming from Russia. Nobody has explained how that is going to be made up, meaning the shortfall. Qatar, all these other countries. They are not going to be able to make up the shortfall. And even from the standpoint of the United States, 80% of the U.S. reserves are already going out into Europe. So the U.S. is not even going to be able to make up the shortfall in regards to natural gas. And so the catch is, Russia is like, okay, fair enough. You guys are already over a borough. You pass all of these sanctions. And I made reference maybe two or three weeks ago that why do they believe that Russia is going to stand there and allow unilateral sanctions to be applied and they have no response to those sanctions? especially around the item to which they spared, meaning you spared gas because you needed it so desperately. Why didn't you believe that Russia may do something with the thing to which you need it desperately, which is what this is? And so now Europe is going to have to make a choice. Do they go cold or do they pay for it in rubles? More importantly, where are you going to get rubles from? Ultimately, you've sanctioned all of these other products which under normal circumstances, you can buy that stuff and you can, you know, Russia would give you rubles in order to pay for it or give you dollars or whatever else. But in this case, you've sanctioned all of these items. So not only have you basically stolen the cash or stolen your money, but you've sanctioned these other products. How are you going to get rubles to pay for it? 
Yes, there are going to be contract disputes. Yes, Europe is going to pitch a fit. All of that is going to take place by the same token. What is Europe going to do? Are they going to go without the gas or not? And that's the reality of it. They probably will not have a choice. So one of the articles in Politico was even making the point of saying Europe is trying to transfer its reserves over to something else, but is not going to be able to do so in any period of time where this is not going to be painful. And so we'll see how this turns out. Um, The ruble went up in value, obvious reasons, basically using gas supplies in order to shore up the value of the currency. And more importantly, if Europe is forced to do this, which I got to be honest, I don't see how they avoid it. What does this mean for Russia or the ruble being international currency in comparison to what it was prior? This stuff is backfiring. And it's not just the Russian economy that's being hit. The world is going into a recession. And if China and India also get sanctioned, which is the United States is talking about doing, what is that going to mean for the rest of us? What is that going to mean for the rest of us? Burn, strong move. Um, the move makes practical sense. I'm so glad you brought this up because yesterday this totally flew under the radar and yeah. how not only was this, when I say a petty move, I mean that like in a positive way yeah. because it's like, he's like, yeah, he's like, I'm not, I'm not taking your crap anymore. Yeah. Like this. And again, it's like, well, I'm going to go take your dollars when you're not going to give me the value for those dollars. Exactly. You stolen our cash. So no, yeah, from not here on out, you, You've called me a warmonger. You called me a war, uh, criminal. a war criminal. You, you're, you're saying that like this was an unprovoked invasion when this has been going on for eight years what is he to do? And here's the other thing is that Russia is ready and has been taking hit after hit after hit and literally dodging it Ivan Obvi- Drago style. Yeah. Like they, They're like, okay, like what's next? Like we've, we've had this all planned. And this is the other thing what happens when you just continue to sanction countries, they learn how to adapt. It's that part. It's yes. that part. Because ultimately the sanctions that have been going on for so long, well, they made people very skeptical of keeping the dollars and, you know, that type of stuff. And even though, like they said, they tried to use it as this kind of thing to protect themselves. But at the end of the day, the Russian economy had started to become insular. Like, it started to basically produce that stuff themselves um, under this notion that it's a hostile world, right? I mean, it's very interesting. I mean, because their point was Russia was basically using the foreign reserves as a protection against, let's say, if anything happened to the ruble. But because of having that many foreign reserves, that foreign reserve issue became somewhat of a liability. It's fascinating that they were using it this way. So Russia turned that liability back on its head of saying, pay us some rubles from here on out. Yeah. Yeah. Strong move. (laughs) And you know what? I don't think this is the last country that's going to do that. I think it gave a lot of ideas to other countries. And when you have Saudi Arabia talking about the yuan, you have now this with the rubles. You know, there there was, um, I think his name is Gonzo Lira. He's a, a... American reporter on the ground, he was, um, I think I mentioned him the other day, you know, where they were saying that, um, you know, he's like, if you don't hear from me in 48 hours, they got me because he's yeah. been, you know, um, reporting in Mariupol. Um, but he's like, the dollar's going to crash. He goes, in the next 16 to 18 months, he goes, and we all need to be ready. And the problem is, is that Americans like to put their blinders on and say, no, no, it's not. It's not. We're the greatest country in the world. It's not going to happen. And it's like, folks. This is falling at a, st- at a yeah. pace where if we don't do something now and we don't figure this Ukraine stuff out. I don't think people get the gravity of the shocks that we've encountered. I mean, the COVID thing in and of itself, you've had supply chain breaks. I mean, you're you just had- looking at gas prices right now. Yeah, through the roof. And by That's the way, the, this the is not even priced in yet. Like, we're seeing this stuff before this stuff really gets priced into the energy markets. I mean, what is your... I don't think people fully grasp the blowback effect that this is going to have, not just on our economy, but in Europe. 
I mean, gas is so integrated. Russia is so integrated into the economy. And again, these guys are still talking about going after China after this, which is just mind-blowing. Look, we'll see what happens. But yeah, I'm inclined to believe that we are going to have some kind of financial stress as a result of the actions that we're taking now and as the actions that were taking place during COVID. We'll see. Um, Frost is going to be here. stress, I say heartache, but that's just me. Yeah, (laughs) agreed. Um, You guys are listening to Fault Lines. Thomas, Bronzak. We'll be back in a moment with Elijah McGay. You're not going to want to miss this. Biden is basically having a conversation with his European allies um, in NATO. And gas, of course, is going to be on the agenda. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. Thomas Franzak, back in a moment. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Welcome back to Fault. Welcome back. To, welcome back to Fault Lines. <laughs> welcome. Welcome. Okay. Can you guys hear? Oh, there we are. I'm sorry. <laughs> I couldn't hear myself. I wasn't sure if um, I was translating. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with my co-host, Farron Franzak, coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. And as I mentioned earlier, Biden is going to Europe. He's going to have a conversation with his NATO allies. Of course, the issue is going to deal with Russia, Ukraine, and the conflict that is basically taking place there. But it's also going to have to deal with issues such as natural gas. Where on earth is Europe going to get its energy from? Especially if it's not going to get it from Russia. If I'm not mistaken, Russia supplies like 40% of Europe's energy supplies. And of course, a certain percentage to the United States. Those are still going through Ukraine um, through those transit lines. But asking for rubles now, this creates another dilemma for Joe Biden. Just one of many. To have a conversation about the events that are taking place on the ground in Ukraine and the conversation that is going to take place in Europe, we're joined with Elijah McNeigh. He's a veteran war correspondent, and you can find his reporting on ElijahJM.wordpress.com. Elijah, thank you for joining us. How are you doing this morning? Good morning. Hello, good morning, and thank you for having me again. Absolutely. We love having you. Absolutely. So I want to get into the energy thing. I mean, now that Putin has basically said this is going to be paid in rubles, how is Europe going to handle this? Europe was already having difficulties in trying to find a way to transition off of Russian gas. Um, and now that they got to pay in rubles, well, they clearly understand that this is basically Russia's way of dodging those sanctions and solidifying or shoring up the ruble. How is Europe going to respond to this? What are your thoughts? Well, actually, I talked this morning to many European officials here in Brussels. And they are really sweating, not knowing if the sanctions they have imposed on Russia are on Russia or are on Europe. Right. So they're really confused now because they don't know what to do. And they are caught in between the U.S. imposing on the European uh, community and the European members of NATO, particularly uh, these to a decision on the sanctions on Russia, particularly when Russia provide, as you rightly said in the beginning, uh, 40 to 41 to 42 percent of gas, and it provides not only gas but 4.5 million of barrels of oil uh, per day. So this problem is th- there is no alternative for Europe now to have gas somewhere else. And Europe is not equipped to have a liquidified gas and unless they, I mean, they need to build it. And that was going to take uh, two to four years to have uh, the ability to say, okay, we're not going to get any more the Russian gas and we can get 
the American or the Qatari or the other gas that is liquefied. They're not equipped. They have five pipelines that are receive, they are receiving from Russia through Poland, through Ukraine, until today still functioning. Ukraine is getting the Russian gas and Europe is getting the Russian gas through Turkey and uh, Poland is getting it, uh, Germany, uh, Italy, France, uh, and they keep imposing sanctions on Russia and sending uh, on very regular basis uh, tons of weapons to Ukraine for the war to last longer. So now they are faced with either they have to uh, uh, pay in euro, which means they have to uh, release the uh, several hundred uh, billion uh, dollars and euros that they have uh, uh, confiscated or frozen, if we want to say, that belongs to Russia in their banks, or they have to uh, accept that the ruble has become an international currency and that will in, increase the value of the ruble even more than what happened yesterday, that it went up 8% in one day. So uh, they are in, a, in the middle of dilemma, particularly when Russia is not considered an enemy of Europe. And they all here in Brussels aware that what is happening in Ukraine is something that the Americans have triggered long ago, and they continue provoking Russia, particularly since 2014. Now, Elijah, my question to you, you said, you know, you're talking to folks there that are kind of in the weeds on all of this. Do they feel like they actually are having their voice heard in a lot of these negotiations, or do they feel like the United States is kind of the one that's running the show on all of this? Because I feel like that's important because I feel like, like you just said, Europe has to deal with Russia, and they don't really have a lot of qualms with Russia. However, the United States does, and they have a lot of qualms with a lot of people. But when it comes to the negotiation table, you know, you have a lot of moving parts. Like, you know, for example, you have the Iran nuclear deal talks. Then you have this. Uh, you have them talking about wanting to get Russia out of the G20. Um, it, it seems like the United States is calling for all of this, and they're trying to get Europe on board, but they're still hesitant. What are you hearing on that front? Well, that's a very good question. I'm going to turn it the other way around. I just want to tell you that today, uh, Brussels is receiving President Joe Biden for one reason only. He doesn't need to come to have a meeting with NATO. He doesn't need to agree with the European partners what to do in Ukraine because they've already laid down the plans and they have already provided Ukraine with a media platform, European um, parliaments are open to the very good uh, comedian actor, President Zelensky, uh, and uh, they are uh, hearing all the morale lessons that he's giving them on a regular basis. Europe today uh, received Biden for him to walk under the arch of triumph to say, I have managed and succeeded in my important goal to subjugate Europe and to submit the Europeans behind the United States when they were really hesitant in having their own army, in having good relationship with Russia, having good business relationship with Russia. All that was not fitting with the uh, U.S. objectives on the long and medium terms. So what Biden has managed, he has succeeded today, and he's collecting the victory 
that he's coming for, uh, to Europe to show how he has won over the European and forced them to stand behind me, even if that was and still is against their interest. This is what Biden is doing in Brussels today. Let me ask you this. Do you think that Biden is going to be able to push Europe into going towards sanctioning gas? I mean, that seems to be this is kind of secondary push. The United States wants to apply even more sanctions. And like, you, like I mentioned before, the U.S., yes, we have a certain oil dependence, but all things been equal, Europe is far more desperate um, for the situation. Do you think they're going to be pushed into something like this? Well, yes, he's already pushing them. You hear, look, it's very easy. Listen to Germany. On day one, they say, we can't impose sanctions on Russia. We need the gas. Next day, they say, well, we have to think about it. The third day, somebody else will say, well, we need to skip the Russian gas, although we need it. But we're going to send weapons to Ukraine and we're going to kill more Russian and kill more Ukrainian. All that doesn't fit. It is the Americans. I'm not saying that out of my own head or analysis. I'm just referring to you what the top European officials are saying, and particularly um, European ambassadors here in Brussels, they're saying, we have no choice. We have the Americans telling us what we need to do. And not only that, they're telling us what we have to do and fast. And we just need to do it. When it comes to the G20, you have the United States calling for Russia to be kicked out of it. You had China immediately coming to its defense saying, no, 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 guys, this ain't going to be happening. Um, had China not done that, do you think Europe would have been behind that as well? For certain, Europe has no more any decision and no more say in this war. Europe is, send, is violating its own rules, is not respecting its own international laws that used to respect very much or try to respect. And we've seen how Europe behaved in 2018 when you also mentioned the nuclear deal, how the Europeans remain within the deal without doing anything, not even respecting their commitments because they were afraid of Donald Trump. So it is exactly the same scenario today. Uh, we have Joe Biden, who is focusing on Russia, who's focusing on China, who's trying to separate Russia from China. Because we hear already in the Middle East, in Africa, in Asia, a lot of word coming out from countries, even U.S. allies like Saudi Arabia and the Emirates, saying, well, it's time perhaps for the multipolar world. Well, this is what China and Russia uh, have been working for, just to say to the Americans, we don't want war with you, but you're no longer ruling the world because the way, of, uh, you, the way you're doing it doesn't fit with our objectives. The Europeans are saying today in Brussels, this morning, they told me we make the laws, but they don't apply uh, to the Americans. So all that needs to stop somehow. But unfortunately, now we have gone down to the bottom where the international laws are no longer respected even further, and where suddenly the conscience of the world is waking up on Ukraine and saying, well, Russia is the bad guy because this is what Russia is doing and is invading Ukraine. Okay, well, can we have a, a rule and a law that is the equal for everybody? Oh, no, it's equal only for the country who are the enemy of the United States and its allies. But this is the world we are living in today. I'm curious, based on 
debt assessment in the way that Europe is basically this kind of vassal state um, to the United States. Are you concerned that this escalates? Meaning, even though many of these countries are saying now, we're not going to, NATO is not going to fight a war. I think Stolenberg, uh, Stolenberg said it yesterday. NATO is not going to fight a war with Russia. By the same token, you have a lot of people who are basically screaming that Russia is a black hat, that the U.S. and the West are white hats. And the moment that you get this kind of, let's say, consensus brewing in your population, then the population starts asking questions like, hey, aren't you going to defend them? I mean, the media here in the United States have been asking those questions like, hey, aren't you going to do more to defend Ukraine? Aren't you going to do more to defend Ukraine? Is there any concern with you that this escalates beyond this kind of regional conflict in the way, let's say, the First World War with Serbia um, and, and Austro-Hungarian Empire um, escalated? I've covered over uh, more than a dozen wars around the world. This is the only war that I am extremely concerned about because the world war doesn't start between two great and giant countries. It starts with small countries. Today, we see that NATO is saying we're not going to interfere in this war, yet who is sending thousands of missiles every single day to Ukraine? And why they are sending it to Ukraine? For Ukrainian to fight the Russian and um, for both sides to kill each other. Uh, with the outcome that is known, but they, the aim that this is what Boris Johnson said today, we want the war to last as long as possible. So this is the objective. The objective is to Russia to remain in Ukraine and for the Ukrainian not to sign a deal. And that's very scary because today Ukraine has a, a border with NATO countries like Poland and uh, all the other countries on the borders. And the situation is extremely volatile because this is where all the weapons are coming into Ukraine. So if Russia decides to hit, so far Russia has been very careful by uh, sending only precision missiles, very accurate missiles, into particular area in the west of Ukraine, around 30 to 35 kilometers or miles from the borders with Poland. But if Russia decides to hit convoys that are on the borders, so is it going to be considered inside the Polish area or inside the Ukrainian area? What's going to be uh, the reaction of NATO? What if Zelensky, President Zelensky, decides to sign a deal very quickly and end the war because he saw not only Mariupol is falling, but the entire Donbass that the separatists used to control 35%, today they control 90 to 95% according to American military experts. So we see that these objectives of the Russian that have not been announced yet, only by the Americans and the experts that pretend to have been sitting with Putin all the time and know every single detail about his plans, which they don't, uh, so far there are no announced objectives. Now, if Putin start taking a third of Ukraine and start moving to Odessa and up to Kiev, so far he's not taking the capital, but he's coming close to make sure that the Ukrainian will understand that he's serious in what he's doing. But Ukrainians are not on their own. Every time the Ukrainians show a little bit of flexibility during the negotiation with the Russian, then we see the next day that Ukrainian refuse to sign what they have agreed upon the day before and want more point and want to discuss something different, which means it is not the quality and the skillful Ukrainian negotiator. It is other parties who are pushing them and saying, we continue the war as long as possible. Don't worry, the whole international community is supporting you. 
But the support on Twitter and on social media and on the newspaper is not enough to stop the killing of the Ukrainian. It is an agreement on the paper with Russia where Ukraine agreed not to be a NATO country. That will stop the war. You know, and it's so interesting, too, that you say that, that that's other countries at play, because that's exactly what I think many Americans that are understanding what's going on will have to a thousand percent agree with that. But then you have these other Americans where, you know, yes, Ukraine is winning the war on Twitter, but they're not <laughs> winning the war on the ground. And but Americans are being told and propagandized that they are winning on the ground. But one of the things that's really funny and interesting is you have a show here, I don't know if you've ever seen it, it's called The Hill Rising, and they had a debate yesterday, one of the women being Kim Iverson, and then you have this guy Ryan Grimm and Robbie Soav, and, you know, she was asking, you know, what's the end game? Why are they not negotiating? Is this uh, the United States trying to bleed out Putin through Ukraine? And, you know, it, it comes back where this girl's asking these questions, and the one kid, this kid Robbie Soav, is like, yeah, bleed him out, bleed him out. And and that's kind of the American mentality where they think that that's actually going to work. And then you also have this American mentality where they view Zelensky as this like Tom Cruise, you know, um, saving private Ryan, like this, this amazing movie character in, in all of this. I mean, they already have picked out who they want him, to, who they want to play him in the movie that's already pretty much being written in Hollywood. And then you also have him where he is doing his speeches in front of green screens where you can see that his arms are getting like cut out and then they get cut back in, which is what he says that he's in Kiev or he's in Lviv, wherever he's at. You have it where he's doing the what we we're calling the kickstart to World War Three tour where he's going around and asking all these countries for help. And the only one that kind of maybe hinted about any kind of help was you Italy saying, oh, maybe we should put him into the EU. And everyone was like, uh, bad idea. You have all these countries in Europe that literally are not seeing him the way that the United States is seeing him. So for those that aren't over there in Europe, how does Europe view him? Because again, here, he is like up for the Nobel Peace Prize. First of all, he is a kind of Tom Cruise because he is an actor mm. and he's this not a politician. Yes, <laughs> but he's not the Tom Cruise that can, can go on a Mission Impossibles and then succeed at the end of the film. This is not the film. This is the problem. Delinsky doesn't understand that this is real life. This is the life of Ukrainian that he's putting on the table by accepting more weapons from the West and knowing exactly that he's not going to stand against Russia and win because Russia is careless about the consequences and wants to win this war no matter what happened and what is the price, because it's an existential threat. And Russia said, we do not use nuclear weapons unless there is an existential threat against our country. So going to war, knowing exactly that was a U.S. trap, Russia went in because that was an existential threat. Now, I wouldn't blame really the Americans and the Europeans and anybody today because the propaganda and the misinformation is up to the point that sometimes I really need to think about before falling it into the same trap myself. It is impossible to succeed to understand what's happening. 
you have a university professor in Chicago saying something about the, the war and that is going to happen in 2015. And then suddenly this happened and he's smeared to death because uh, they consider him as a Putinist. So the world is not ready to listen to another story, to another point of view. The world is not ready to hear something else because the general idea is anti-Putin is good. Uh, listening to the voice of reality, this is bad. It means you are a Russian, you are a Putinist, you support the killing of Ukrainian. There is no way in between and reason doesn't have a place. So I really wouldn't blame the American audience. And uh, I have fight with my friends on a regular basis here by whenever you present an argument with facts, they say, oh, you support Putin. They go to personal uh, comment. Yeah, they can't deal with the reality. Like, I had a, well, I can't call it a debate. I respect the guy too much to call it a debate. But the same thing. I mean, I, I greatly respect the guy's intellect. Um, and yet, basically follows Western sources. And I would pretty sure if I'm, you know, asked the question, okay, where did you get that from? They would have a hard time kind of explaining um, the pattern. And well, yeah, and a perfect example is that that professor you're talking about, it's John Mersheimer. When all of this started, when all of these troops started to get built up, I hail from Chicago, so I have a little bit of a bias here. But but he was a professor at University of Chicago, and I was looking up on YouTube, and his his lecture had happened to come up. This is an interesting thing. I remember when I first clicked on his his speech, there was maybe about ten thousand views. What Do you know how many views are there right now? Of his speech right now? 22 million. Wow. 22 yeah, million. That is significant. And this was, again, I watched it months ago, like in November. And it's almost as if they're trying to tamp down, but in tamping down, there are these outlets where people are able to kind of get that information. And, and it's almost the new argument of if you if you disagreed with anything on Black Lives Matter or what have you, it was, well, you're then you're a racist. Yeah, you're racist. Whereas this is now, oh, well, then you're a Putin puppet. I'm curious. Are you shocked by this, Elijah? I mean, you've covered wars in the past. I mean, does it seem or feel fundamentally different in the way that the propaganda war is being waged in the West? I've never seen such a level of propaganda and misinformation ever in my entire life. I've seen, and I thought the maximum I've seen was in Syria, 2011 to 2020. But today, that goes beyond any expectation. It's really impossible for anyone to understand the truth. And when you see uh, the uh, people listening to the voice of uh, wisdom and there are 22, 23 million, that is really uh, very fascinating to uh, understand and to realize that there are people looking for the truth. And your radio is, is a proof. There are people willing to listen to something different. Unfortunately, though, a lot of those people, you know, here, we're seeing more and more Elijah the censorship game is starting to come back and rear its ugly head the way it did in 2017, but even worse. Um, or even now, even if, if it's just a thought that counters um, what somebody's thinking, that hurts my feelings, that's hate speech. Now the whole thing is hate speech. In the land of democracy, and again, the other thing is, is, is here, Ukraine is supposed to be, we're fighting for democracy, yet Zelensky just expelled is his entire party that was against him. 11 party. And not only that, the general prosecutor was expelled in Ukraine to the demand of Joe Biden because he was investigating 
uh, his son, the uh, the the one after uh, after also was uh, forced to resign. The corruption is tremendous in Ukraine. How do you think this is going to turn out? Just from your own take of this, and we only have about a minute or two minutes left. If you had to give this kind of prognostication in regards to results, do you think Zelensky comes to terms, or do you think he allows the military to basically be smashed? What are your thoughts? I think he has no longer the um, will to decide, and he doesn't have uh, he doesn't control anymore what's happening in Ukraine. It's, the decision comes always beyond the Ukrainian borders. And uh, this is the problem. It is not up to the Ukrainian to decide. Their fate is not up to the Ukraine to decide to sit with the Russian and reach an agreement. Yes, they can sit, but they're not serious in reaching an agreement. And that is very serious. They need to wake up and understand that the West is supplying them with weapons so they can go and fight to the last Ukrainian. I get the feeling that Zelensky knows it and he continues to do it anyway. Elijah, thank you for this. I really appreciate it. We always enjoy um, your analysis. Elijah Magnier, he's a veteran war correspondent with 35 years experience in Iran, Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, Libya, Sudan, Afghanistan, and Yugoslavia. You can follow Elijah on Twitter at E-J-M-A-L-R-A-I and follow his reporting on his website, ElijahJM.wordpress.com. Thought lines, Thomas Franzak, back in a moment. Live from the divided states of America, precipitously perched at the edge of this resilient and exploited globe. Welcome to your context lens for the American perspective. In the left corner, I'm your ever-vigilant, your indefatigable political analyst, Jamal Thomas. And in the ladies' corner, my trolls call me Moscow Mary, but I'm your pierogi princess, American Farron, journalist extraordinaire Farron Franzak. That means, more likely than not, you are listening to Fault Lines with Thomas and Franzak. Right on. I always love those early morning foreign policy conversations. Oh, yeah. Um, especially. Wake up. I know, right? It's like, everybody wake up. The world the is at, over. Oh, wake up. Yeah, we're, we're at the precipice of, of disaster. I'll pay attention. Would you like any cream in your coffee while the world's ending? <laughs> right. Right. Especially if Zelensky gets his way with that. What do you call it? You always name it correctly. It's the, the, the what is it? Tour. tour. Yeah. yeah, start the World War III tour. That's basically exactly what yep. it is. Let's yep. kick this and war he opens off. it up with a nice dance number, you know. <laughs> a little com- comedic routine. The, did you ever see the dance number that he did? No, I haven't. Oh. Is it really good? You haven't seen the music video where he's like... Popping and locking. No, he's like dressed up as a woman and stuff. Uh-huh. And he's like really sexual. Yeah, really. Zelensky. Uh, yeah, I'm going to send it to you. I thought you, you were going to say he was like spinning drop. on his lips or something like that. And you know what's funny is I saw it from our, our guest coming up this hour from Scotty Nell Hughes. Did you? She showed it to me and I was like, that's not him. That's got to be like a face tune. And she's like, no, that is him, honey. What was it? He was doing like a skit for a television show? No, or? no, no, no. It was like a song. He was in a boy band. No way. So I didn't know that. I knew he was a comedian and I knew he had the show like no, Welcome no, to the President or something like that. He was in a boy band. He won like Ukraine's Dancing with the Stars. Yeah. Um, he's done multiple uh, movies, obviously. He did one about a comedian that and becomes president. I can't believe. And now Netflix is putting all over the place, too, his whole show. So you mean that this could have been done with a dance contest, a dance-off between I Putin and Zelensky? World War Three opens up with a dance number. It should have just been a dance-off. World War Three. 
it just World War Three. Just move it. Just move it. Exactly. Move it. Um, yeah, it's like Flash Dance Zelensky. I, I yeah, I man, this is well. I, I, yeah, I got to see that video. Definitely uh-huh. send that to me. But let's do this. Let's get to the headlines. In the and news, mind you, he's, he's dancing in high heels too. Really? Yeah. yeah. That's actually pretty impressive. Uh, from my understanding, well, high heels are not necessarily easy to move in, let alone pop and lock in. I'm gonna put it in the fault lines chat, and you can just 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 go to him. Wow, that's that's pretty impressive. I mean, the heels thing not easy. That's what I hear anyway. Um, but in the news, in COVID news, chief executives for American Airlines, United Airlines, Delta Airlines, and other carriers on Wednesday urged President Joe Biden to end the federal mask mandate on airplanes and international press or pre-departure testing requirements. The airline executives, including the chairman of Southwest Airlines and JetBlue CEO, said in a letter, the restrictions, quote, are no longer in line with the realities of the current epidemiological environment, unquote. The Biden administration this month opted to extend COVID-19 mask requirements at airports, train stations, rideshare vehicles, and other transmit modes through April 18th. The order was set to expire March 18th. Of course he's going to do that. There's no negative for him doing that, even though I know for the airlines, they hate it. Um, last thing he wants is another pop-up. It Judge Katanji Brown Jackson defended her sentencing practices and her views on expanding the Supreme Court, among other topics, during a second day of sometimes sharp questioning from members of the Senate Judiciary Committee Wednesday. Um, as hearings continue over a historic nomination to be the first black woman on the Supreme Court, at one point, the judge said, if she is confirmed that she will recuse herself in case before the court, about the use of race in admission process at Harvard University. The Harvard Law graduate has been a member of the college board overseers since 2016. After three years of complaints and debate, the Army has scrapped its move to have a physical fitness test that is gender and age neutral and will not allow women or older soldiers to pass while meeting some reduced standards. The change, however, will affect only regular fitness tests that soldiers take annually. Qualifying for certain army jobs, particularly more demanding combat positions or specialties such as ranger school, will continue to require that everyone, regardless of age or gender, must pass the same fitness test standards. Why does every... Put a pin in that. Come back to that. Why does everybody need to pass the same fitness standards? Men and women are going to be physically different. Why are you trying to make it gender neutral? This is not a situation... How you assume these people's genders? I mean, this is not a situation where we need... It's just weird that the military, that... Yes, heavily depends on the physical fitness of the various people that are there are trying to come up with a gender neutral test. Why? Why does it need to be gender neutral? There are going to be different qualifications between men and women. I don't see the problem with that, but but uh, whatever. I think that's ideological. That's my point. Um, <laughs> President Joe Biden and Western allies opened the first of three summits focused on increasing pressure on Russian President Vladimir Putin over his war in Ukraine while tending the economic and security fallout spreading across Europe and the world. Over the course of today, the European diplomatic capital is hosting an emergency NATO summit as well as a gathering of group of seven industrialized nations and a summit of 27 members of the European Union. Biden would attend all three of these meetings and plans to hold a news conference at the end of the day. We'll see. They're going to be injecting him with all sorts of B12 to get him um, up and awake for wake all of up. that. Wake up, Biden. Wake up. Sir, sir, sir. Wake up. Stop falling asleep. North Korea launched an intercontinental ballistic missile for the first time since 2017 in a major escalation of tensions over its weapons program. The launch ended a self-imposed moratorium on testing ICBMs and nuclear weapons that North Korea declared in 2018 ahead of a diplomatic talks with former President Donald Trump and ultimately collapsed. The country is barred from such tests um, under UN Security Council resolutions. 
Experts say the weapons tests are meant to force the international community to recognize Kim Jong-un's regime as a nuclear power and lift sanctions that have devastated the country's economy. Well, they don't need you to recognize it as a nuclear power if it just is one. Um, But yeah, sanctions, pay attention to us. Yes, both of those. In holiday news, we have National Cocktail Day. That's always great, I suppose. We have National Chocolate-Covered Raisin Day. Don't eat those. That's not all that great. An International Day for the Rights of Truth Concerning Gross Human Rights Violation and the Dignity of Victims, which again gets across that that is not the norm, the fact that you need to make a day, one day out of the year for something like that. Those are your headlines. You guys are listening to Fault Lines with Thomas and Franza. I have one more headline that I want to get to, and this has to do with UFOs, believe it or not. So, you know, the Office of Director of National Intelligence came out with their bombshell report. I think this was a couple of years ago. And the report basically got across. This is real. People, this has been going on for a long time. Of all of the items that we've reviewed for these last several years, we only could identify one. These represent physical objects. Um, there is a headwind for us getting people to tell their stories because of the ridicule that these people have faced for all of these years. Um, but this is a legitimate thing, and we need to put more research and more study into doing so. That was the unclassified version of the report. So the classified version of the report has apparently been released, even though parts of it has been redacted. You have situations where entire pages have been redacted, which is like, dude, are you serious? There's even parts where they're talking about shapes and sizes of the different items and how the shape and size may denote capability or function. Even that part is blocked out, meaning from the standpoint of the shapes. It's like, what do shapes have to do with national security that you guys are preventing us from seeing? But ultimately, just as a heads up, Kristen Gillibrand was one of the main people for this. Marco Rubio was one of the main people for this. After the report came out, I made the point of saying there was no way to ignore this issue from here on out. You've just had a report released by all of the agencies of the government, all of the alphabet soup saying, this is our report. This is what we deem to be true. Your Congress basically comes out and start getting far more aggressive on it. And when Congress starts to get far more aggressive on it, the Pentagon comes out and says, hey, hey, wait, you can trust us now. We are going to investigate this to which Congress was like kick rocks. Christian Gillibrand passed this, established in the NDAA, National Defense Authorization Act. I know lefties hate it, but they did tuck this into that defense bill. Collection and analysis of data in central repository. The UAP office will supervise the development and execution of intelligence collection and analysis regarding UAPs in order to understand their technical scientific characteristics. The UAP office will receive relevant data immediately from the intelligence community agencies, establish the scientific plan. The UAP office will be responsible for implementing a science plan to, uh, for scientific theories related to UAP characteristics and performances, build the National Priorities Intelligence Network or framework. The DNI will be required to consult the Secretary of Defense and assign a level of priority within the National Intelligence Priorities Framework related to UAPs, evaluate any link between UAPs and foreign governments, non-state actors. Again, this makes common sense. Are these things us or are they not us? That is a big deal. And report to Congress, which is another huge part of it. The UAP office will be required to provide unclassified annual reports to Congress and classified semi-annual briefings on intelligence analysts reported incidents, health-related effects, and the role of foreign governments in nuclear security. Those three are massive, even though they're written in this kind of muted language. Um, I went to a program by Bob Soleus, who was in the military for God knows how long. But Bob Soleus, in addition to many of the other military people that were there, were talking about nuclear weapons being shut down by these craft that are flying overhead. That's what she's talking about when she's talking about nuclear weapons and security and everything else. Lou Elizondo, who was here, also made mention to the nuclear weapons basically being shut down. This is not something that's supposed to happen. Um, and yet, 
It did. You have this other thing, health-related effects. What she's talking about here is health-related effects based on people who've encountered craft. It's muted in the way that she's saying it, but there are other documents that go longer where she's talking about what exactly these programs are going to be and what exactly um, these things are going to do and what they're going to study. Health effects of the UFO is big. The fact that she was willing to put that in the bill in and of itself, even transmedium devices, devices that have the capability of going in water, land, space, et cetera, without losing a beat and with maintaining their own energy or maintaining speeds. Even signal management, this notion of seemingly intelligent control devices that are managing how they come across to other people who are basically observing those items. Now, this could be part of the proportion if they're using gravity for manipulation or something to that effect. But either way, all of these things were part and parcel to the reason that these guys basically said, this needs to be studied. This is real. There's all questions of why now, but those questions are, you know, nobody knows that. Um, needless to say, declassified by Black Vault. Black Vault is a guy who basically sends FOIA requests and all of these things out to get all of the files that he can get access to. He did this and was able to get files back that was redacted, unclassified. I got to be honest, I didn't see a huge amount in the documentation that was radically different. And a lot of that could just be because so much of it was redacted. Um, but that's out. UFO Twitter is trending right now. It's been trending for the last few days. And that's why. Yeah. It's right here. The effect of Black Vault is the result of a mandatory declassification review case filed under 32 CFR 51704, not the usual Freedom of Information Act. Cases generally filed under ah, less than 24 hours after the public version of the item was released. So this is big. And people have been talking about it, even though I haven't seen anything from Bombshell thing any more than the original ODNI report that came out several years ago. Just want to put it out. It's, it's big news from the standpoint of UFO Twitter. All of the UFO people are like, oh, my God, this is amazing. But again, I don't see anything bombshell in it other than the original report being the bombshell in and of itself. I remember watching, I can't remember what UFO documentary it was, but it was about a guy who was able to figure out how to. Oh, call him. Um, well, no, it was, it was a guy that figured out, I believe it was either using water or it was using air or something, uh, of, for energy. Yeah. And they ended up like, he ended up being found dead. Oh, geez. And how like all of the plans, they like took all of his plans. They were just gone. And, and at they were point. just gone. Yeah. And I'm trying to remember. They would file that stuff in the national security. What they would do is they would come in and it would say either they will buy him out or they will file in under national security. This is that stuff that the public can know, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I'm not, I mean, it was. Just, I am not shocked by it. It was just weird, though. Yeah, but I mean, it. When you think a lot about, you know, for example, like a lot of people don't know that, like the Koch brothers, for example, we mentioned one yeah. of them, um, how they have lobbied so many times to keep gas guzzlers on the road, exactly, and how they have lobbied against public transportation. Yes, which is why trans public transportation sucks exactly. everywhere you go. For example, they lobbied beautiful um, in Europe. Yeah, horrible here. Yeah, dependent on cars. Right, like 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 China has a bullet train. Yes, Japan has a has a train that can levitate, like the monorails in Disney. Yeah, I mean like right, using electromagnetics in order to kind of basically move right. along frictionless. I was trying to get a train to Chicago to go to the People's Summit, I believe it was called. Good luck. They don't have one. They don't have one. Good I luck. mean, you would have to take like multiple trains and everything else. Horrendous here. I mean, in comparison to Europe. I mean, you get on a bullet train going from France to England. You're looking at windmills. You're just kind of getting your tea or your coffee or your mm -hmm. tequila or whatever you're going to do. And it is a beautiful trip. And here, for whatever reason, like you said, we, we had to buy sorts of cars because of issues of gas and everything else and people making profit off of that stuff. And we've suffered for it. And it's just it's just so interesting. And again, like people look at it like where, where we're ripping on the United States. And it's like 
No, but you should start asking questions. Yeah. Why is it that China can do a bullet train and you walk in and it's not like kids puked everywhere? Right. You go on the Amtrak here and it's like, oh my God. Like, Ugh. yeah. That's why it was like, oh, the Metro is going to get all of this cleaning done during COVID. It was like, well, thank God, because when was the last <laughs> time it was clean? Same with like the New York subways. Like, you know, you go down there and it reeks of feces or yeah. urine and you're just like. Well, because you basically have homeless people living. In the subways or, or trying to get out of the elements wherever they could. And sometimes that's on the street. Sometimes that's the subways. Yeah. I mean, I guess my thing is when Chris Christie got rid of, what was it? I think they were trying to have a bullet train going from like New York to New Jersey. And he ends up, what, pocketing the money or something like that and refusing to go through with it. It's stuff like and that. They were going to do a train from Milwaukee to Chicago. And yeah. I just know this being from the Midwest because there's a lot of back and forth with, with you know, production and manufacturing and whatnot. And um, yeah, and they lobbied, the Koch brothers lobbied for that money to go to fix basically one tiny little part of the highway where it was like this, you know, inter interchange. Wow. And they put all the money towards that. When you could have saved people money, you could have probably built up more business between the two cities. And keep in mind, people who are poor or middle class may not yes. have the capability to buy a car. I mean, meaning it's, you allow no, those people to be able to get to work. Just buy an electric car, yeah, right? Yeah, just, just buy an electric car. I mean, not to mention climate change. Like all of these things are positive um, developments. You cut down on the number of cars on the street. You cut down on the amount of traffic, et cetera, et cetera. We are not ragging on the country to rag on the country. We're ragging on it because we're saying that's a problem. That's a mistake. Yeah. Like, that's not meaning me pointing it's not, out. It's not a mistake by, like, Congress. No. Well, part of it is by Congress, but. Self-interest. We have oligarchs here, folks. Yes. A la the Koch brothers, a la your Elon Musk's and your Steve, or not your Steve Jobs, your your Bill Gates. We're not supposed to call your them. your Jeff Bezos. Um, oligarchs here. They're job creators. Job creators are tight <laughs> business creators. tycoons, yes. right? And that's the thing is, is, but then you have these Russian oligarchs over there that, well, yes, they might create jobs. They don't have as much pull Nowhere because neither. as Mark so poignantly said yesterday, they don't have money in politics over there the way that we do. So you have, you know, Nancy Pelosi and Biden and all these bag of bones leaders. And yes, I can start calling them that because they're getting up there, folks. Um you have all of them that think, yeah, sanction him, sanction him, because they think it's going to hit them yes. like it would hit us. And that doesn't happen whatsoever. Right. And you know what? All of these sanctions, honestly, it's. I think I think one of these days, I'm going to say it right now as a prediction, I think it's going to come home to roost. I think you're going to see China is. start to get so aggravated that it's like, you know what? I mean, nobody was talking about how China sanctioned Raytheon and Lockheed Martin when they did a whole big deal with Taiwan. But you're not going to see that, though, because where are they going to make up the money for it? Europe. They will buy you know? It. Yeah. And it's very, very sad. But you know what? I need to prep for my, my big eulogy. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. It's funny. This diva over here was like, I don't think that camera works. That camera is not getting my, my visage correctly. Um, he just called me a diva <laughs> when he sat here that. and did little nibble, nibble, nibble on pierogies. Oh, it was a diva nibble on pierogies? Oh, yours was a diva, a diva nibble, nibble. nibble, yeah. I'll and that. Um, folks, just so we're, we're clear, yes, the um, the Zelensky video has made it into the chat and people are shook. Shook. I have it in the fault lines chat. Um, but yeah, you're going to want to take a look at the break and you're going to... Yeah. Uh-oh. Yeah, I'm going to check that out. But let's do this. Let's close so we can go to Fern's fault and we can get the eulogy that I have been waiting for all morning. I was When she told me this in the car, I was like, okay, that's going to be great. I'm looking forward <laughs> to that. So we're going to get the eulogy of Madeline 
Yes, 500,000 kids are worth it. Albright, who has dropped dead yesterday at the age of 84. She's worth it. Fault lines, Thomas Bronzak. Back in a moment. Fault lines. Fault lines. And welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Farron Franzak, joined with my co-host, Jamarl Thomas, whenever the hell he decides to come back here. Coming to you live from our station in D.C. If you guys live in the area, you can catch us on the radio at 105.5 FM and 1390 AM. We're also in Kansas City at 102.9 FM and 104.7 FM. Also, if you're digging, what myself and Jamarl are putting out there, whatever platform you're consuming this content on, give us the like a rumble, share this video. If you want to join on the conversation, you can send a chat, a tweet. And of course, you can always reach us by phone at 202-521-1320. Again, 202-521-1320. Your engagement helps makes this show what it is. So definitely don't be shy. Feel free to call. Uh, again, rumble.com slash fault lines, rumble.com slash fault lines. We have 342 of you in the chat right now. Make sure that you like, share, subscribe, hit that rumble button. Let's get ready to rumble this, folks, on this day of remembrance. We remember the 64th United States Secretary of State from 1997 to 2001. Under President Bill Clinton, she was the first female U.S. Secretary in history. She immigrated here with her family to the United States from Czechoslovakia, an area she probably looked at maybe later to bomb to smithereens. Her father was a diplomat, settled the family in Denver, Colorado, where reports say she might have been infiltrated by the CIA. She became a citizen in 1957 and graduated from Wellesley College and earned a PhD from Columbia University writing her thesis on Prague Spring. She worked as an aide, taking a position under Zbigniew Brzezinski, who for the longest time wanted to take down the Soviet Union one step at a time. She then also worked for the National Security Council and served that position until 1981 when President Jimmy Carter left office. She was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom by U.S. President Barack Obama and has been hailed as one of the most peaceful women ever to live in the United States. Wow, Maddie. If only people knew the real and true you. Who's the real you, Maddie? Well, back in the early 1990s, when the United States was broke as hell, and we tried to figure out ways we could make more money. We looked to you, baby girl. And what did you think of? You thought of a great idea. Let's bomb Iraq. Back to the Stone Age. Kill its people for no damn reason. And say that it had weapons of mass destruction. When all who knew, including Scott Ritter, who told you, no, baby girl, they ain't there. And when you decided to keep going with your endless fight and kill those 500,000 
Iraqi children? What did you say? When asked on 60 Minutes, you told the American public, all those kids, all those tears, all of it, every last bomb. It was all worth it. And now may those Iraqi children welcome you into heaven and then punch your ass down back to the seventh layer of hell where you belong for the rest of your eternal life. Madeline Albright, folks. Shame. Shame, Shame on Albright. Shame. That is the real eulogy that should be happening. Yeah, that's the one that's not going to take place. <sighs> um, but, but. Starfish clap. Starfish clap. Thank you, Uncle Andre, for queuing my music up. It was beautiful. And just Le- so we- Producer Lath was like, we should do funny music. I'm like, oh, no, no, no. This, no, no. this be, oh, hell no. And let me, let me tell you what the other thing You don't get to be a mass too. murderer or mass killer and then turn around and get funny music. And, and I, exactly. And I said this um, last hour, too. I was like, okay, she did a book signing. Out, I believe it was out in New York. And, and, and God bless his soul, Max Blumenthal. Yeah. He went out there and recorded Oh, he confronted her on this. No, no. He just was there. Oh, okay. He was just there. And knowing, I, I believe he probably might have gotten a tip off. Was this an Ohio kid? No, no, he 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 played it yesterday, actually. So the gray zone, uh, um, it was Max and Aaron Mate. They had Scott Ritter on, and during the interview, they were live streaming. It, excuse me, it broke that. Um, oh my God, Jerry Altolato, funeral attendees. Okay, she's dead. Let's eat. Um, yeah, <laughs> we will not pour one out. No. Um, <laughs> <laughs> All right. Pour, it, pour yeah. some off for the people who are under here. Yeah, exactly. Um, but no, so, uh, but they were live streaming and in the middle of it, they got the, the breaking news that she had died. And that's where Scott was on. Oh, perfect. Yeah, and then Just he a talked cosmic about, moment. Yeah, yeah, he talked about his relationship with her because he had to deal with her multiple times during that whole Iraq invasion. And one of the things that also came up was that um, Max Blumenthal said, hang on, I'm going to bring this up, you know, for historical purposes and showed how when she was at a book signing, because after she went on to like start a whole Madeleine Albright school where she was going to help these women get into leadership roles. And it's like, (laughs) you mean you're going to teach young girls how to bomb other countries to the Stone Age? (laughs) Like that kind of school? Um, but no, but so he's there and I think he might've gotten a tip off that some Serbians were going to be there to protest. Uh And mind you, the day that she died was the same day that she ordered the bombings on Serbia. Really? Yes. Very fitting. God has a funny way of getting back at people. Um, (laughs) wow. Let that be, let that be known. Um, but yeah, so she, um, so they, they show up and they're just, they're screaming at her. They're yelling at her because again, she, bombed them back to the Stone Age, and they didn't do anything. And mind you, she used NATO's Article 4 to bomb these people to but all they were hell. arguing, oh, they're committing genocide. Right. That was part, again, one of the arguments that was basically utilized mm-hmm. to justify that bombing. Yeah. And if I remember correctly, this was when Bill Clinton and the Monica Lewinsky stuff was taking place, right? Because um, they were calling it wag there, the dog. Yeah. They were saying, oh, this is a wag the dog. Bill Clinton is doing this because he doesn't want to talk about Monica Lewinsky. Yeah. But, you know, as I had mentioned in the first hour, um, I want to play the clip of the Ohio State student asking her questions because I do think we would have so many people asking these kinds of questions to our foreign or to our leaders dealing with foreign powers. However, I don't think after, especially probably after this kid, this is back in 1998. He's asking her about why we were selling weapons to Israel in places like Indonesia, but bombing the hell out of Iraq. 
Um, so let's go ahead and see. Oh, we don't have it. Okay. Either way, he asks though, you know, why are we doing this? And in her face, she looks at him with such disgust and you hear the entire stadium boo her. Wow. The entire stadium boos her. And she starts turning, saying he's like a, 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 a Saddam Hussein apologist or something like that. She goes, she goes I don't understand why you're going to sit here and show support for Saddam Hussein yeah. when he clearly has weapons of mass destruction. Mind you, it hadn't come out yet. Right. That like they were all full of crap. Yeah. And he's like, I'm not asking that, Miss Albright. And he like goes right at her. Yeah. And again, I think we have plenty of college kids like that that would be asking this question. And mind you, he was asking this question because he and his friends were going over there fighting her war. Right. And so when he comes back, he's like, no, 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 no. I'm just asking, why are we funneling money to our political allies who are doing the same thing as Iraq, but we're bombing Iraq? Right. And so she was not happy about that and clearly didn't have an answer. No, and she didn't have an answer. stupid resting bee face... Yeah, looking oh, at the guy like, how dare you face. bring this up? Yeah. What do you mean, how dare I bring this up? And by the way, that that's such an aggravating pushback. Of, oh, you're just a Saddam Hussein apologist. Why? Because I don't necessarily like the fact that sanctions are basically hitting children and other people in the country itself. It's like, are you insane? You know who's really sweating bullets this morning, though? And I'm going to be interested because I, I haven't watched them for a long time now because I'm just like, ugh, MSNBC, ugh. Anna Kasparian. Mm-hmm. Lee 4D in the chat. Thank you for bringing well, up this point again. Well, she's not on um, MSNBC. She's on Young Turks. No, no, no. I'm saying, I'm saying I don't watch the Young Turks oh, anymore because they're just like MSNBC yeah. Oh, now. totally. Yeah. Yeah. But she was for um, um, Albright. Was, I mean, pa was paid by, wait, you said you got it? Oh, we got it. Let's, let's play excellent. this clip really quick of this Ohio State student. And just take a listen. If you could feel the fumes coming off of her body, her dead, <laughs> lifeless corpse. Let's play it. What do you have to say about dictators of countries like Indonesia, who we sell weapons to, yet they are slaughtering people in East Timor? What do you have to say about Israel, who is slaughtering Palestinians, who impose martial law? What do you have to say about that? Those are our allies. Why do we sell weapons to these countries? Why do we support them? Why do we bomb Iraq when it commits similar problems? examples of things that are not right in this world and the United States is trying <laughs> I uh, really am surprised that people feel that it is necessary to defend the rights of Saddam Hussein when what we ought to be thinking about is how to make sure that he does not use weapons of mass destruction I'd like to I'm not defending him in the least. What I am saying is that there needs to be consistent application of U.S. foreign policy. We cannot support people who are committing the same violations because they are political allies. That is not acceptable. We cannot via, violate U.N. resolutions when it is convenient to us. We You're not, not answering my question, answer. Madam Albright. Uh, wow. And respectful, Mike, by the way. Drop. Yeah. Respectful, by the way. We're going very after respectful. her for it. Yeah. Very respectful. What you can't say is the honest truth that was said in the Tulsa memo. You have to treat allies and enemies differently. And, and that's the basic reality of it. Uh-huh. And like a, a perfect tweet from Adam McLeod. The only tragic thing about Madeleine Albright's death is that it did not occur in an Iraqi prison. Yeah. 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 
Yeah. May you burn in the fires of hell for all eternity and save George W. Bush, Dick Cheney, and Henry Kissinger juice box, lady. They'll be coming right behind you. Yeah. Right behind you. But you know what? We're going to honor this issues for women. No, you know what? As a woman, I'm embarrassed and even more disgusted. That's right. And as a man, I don't feel any particular way about yeah. it. But I agree with you. Totally agree <laughs> yeah, with you on This that. whole woman comment. Get out of here. Well, they're acting as if just because she's a woman, this is somehow some kind of cover for the vagaries of, or, you know, of the things that she did in office. It is not. I mean, Anna Kasparian, Young Turks, home of the progressives, mind you, goes on her channel or gets pa- brings no, her on. Paid, paid by the military industrial complex to go over and interview her. Wow. Yes. Wow. And That's and it worse. said, she's like, I'm so happy to see you. I'm so excited. You're my idol. You. Yeah. It's like, are you insane? This woman was on TV basically saying she got 500,000 kids killed. And you're talking about, I'm the home of the progressives. And yeah. you're, you know, sucking up to a suck in her toes and whatnot about how great and awesome she is as she was getting those people killed. It's, it's, it is the saddest, weirdest, most pathetic thing I think I've seen. And yeah, people are going to be saying, hey, Anna, remember when you interviewed this war criminal and didn't bring up the fact that she killed all those people and thought their kids was worth it? Didn't, not even a throwaway question, just a flowery interview about how awesome and great she is. Well, and then even, you know, like Lee Forty in the chat says, women can be sociopaths too. But the biggest, the biggest thing, though, too, is, is folks in the chat even saying as well, where was it? Um... I just had it. Well, yeah, she sounds like Hillary, a lot like Hillary. Oh, yes. Yeah. Um, but, you know, one of the things is um, with with Madeline Albright, we also need to remember when they're talking about this college kid, because everyone's saying, oh, college kids aren't this smart today. Oh, no, 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 no. I think actually college kids, I, I'll disagree with that wholeheartedly because I think they're seeing this stuff in Ukraine and they're like, they might act like, oh, you know, Ukraine, but they would never go over and fight. But I do no, think you have a fight. lot more college kids that are open. They're watching alternative media. They're listening to podcasts. Even if they start with the, with the, just the grand opening of just Joe Rogan, yeah. excuse me, to get them into it. But one of the things is, is you don't see these kinds of events happening anymore. That's why college kids aren't asking this, because this was probably one of the last times you will ever see a secretary of state sitting in the middle of an Ohio State University stadium like and answering that. questions from college kids. And getting they booed. learned that real quick yeah. and getting that booed. that ain't going to work. Yeah. So it's not so much that the college kids are, are stupid. No, it's they aren't given that opportunity anymore. And maybe we should call for those back. I do, I do think on some level, some of these kids are dumbed down. Or I do think on some situations. But to be fair, I can't say that. I don't know college kids enough to make one choice one way or the other on that. I don't hear that often enough, though. I look at kids, for example, like one of my, my biggest, I'm like one of his biggest stands now, Jackson Hinkle. He's like 22, 23. He's talking about all this stuff and has all the backstory and a lot of it. And he's got a lot of young kids his age and younger listening to him and watching him. So that's where I think kids actually are waking up. They are. I, your mouth to God's ears. And more, more kids are involved in politics today, too, than ever before. And you know what? I think some of that we could thank Trump because he brought it to the forefront. And by the way, we got to close it. But I would agree with you in the sense that part of the reasons they're making those moves in social media in order to get rid of alternate points of view is probably because people are looking for those alternate points of view. Meaning if it wasn't a situation where people weren't looking for it, they wouldn't care what I order. I mean, when they had this notion where they can have mainstream media and you can corral people into these kind of ping pong between Fox and, and, and MSNBC, and that's the only point of view that you basically get, or mainstream media and everything else. And then you have the internet where you have all of these diversified points of view and all of these people explaining it in different ways. And it's like, okay, we've lost control of this. I agree with you on that point. Since many of the people who are basically jumping onto the internet are much younger. 
And many of them are getting all of their news online. And so, yeah, if they feel that they need to eliminate certain bits of information and everything else from those people being able to see it, they're doing it for a reason. That, at least that's my North thought. North Korea TV coming to a democracy near you. <laughs> you guys are listening to Fault Lines. Thomas, Franzak, back in a moment. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with my co-host, Farron Franzak, coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. If you guys just so happen to live in the D.C. area, you can catch us both on radio at 105.5 FM at 1390 AM. Don't ad-lib. We're also in Kansas City at 102.9 FM and 104.7 FM. But keep it quick because we right. got a great guest. Exactly. <laughs> if you guys are digging what we're putting down, whatever platform you're consuming this content on, give us a like and share that audio or video. If you want to join in on the conversation, you can do so by phone at 202. To one one three two zero, and as Farron said, we do have a great guest, and we're a little bit late, so let's go to her immediately. We're joined with Scotty Nell Hughes. She's a former news anchor for News Views Hughes on RT America, as well as a political commentator. She was paid by CNN during the 2016 presidential election, often speaking in support of former President Donald Trump. Scotty was among the first group of radio talk show hosts sent by the Department of Defense to travel to the front lines of Operation Enduring Freedom in Iraq and Kuwait, as well as the detention facilities in Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, something that I knew nothing about and you never brought up, Scotty. Scotty, welcome to the show. Thank Good you for morning, joining us. Scotty. She even said, she's like, can we keep up with the kids' comments? Because... She, she sent me a beautiful picture of her and her in little Houston. Uh, she's like, yep, he's loving the comments. You've got two teenagers, Scotty. Please tell me I'm right. So two teenagers, Scotty. Are, they, are the kids really into politics in the way that Fern seems to believe that they are? Give us the voice of wisdom. The 411. Let me back it up. First of all, this morning I said I'm going to continue with this. I am identifying as a mom who is taking her life in her own hands and letting a 15-year-old drive her to school while she does a radio interview. Oh, that's treacherous. An old radio station. Are you wearing two seatbelts? <laughs> I am. I've got dogs. I've got pillows. I've got <laughs> on. Just letting you know, that's what I'm identifying as right now. She's going to be like, oh, my God. It's like, yeah, it doesn't out of nowhere. Um, Handles. So what do you want to say on this one? I mean, is, have, is social media really one of those gateways into the youth generation where they are paying more attention to the politics or more attention to the things that are going on around the world? What are your thoughts? Well, let me tell you something. Take social media even out of it. And yes, I do believe that is a big part of it. But more importantly, these kids are, are, are awoken. I don't want to say the word woke. Are paying attention for one reason only. Because of the stupid decisions the adults in the world are making. They don't have a choice. Let's remember that the adults in the room, we've made the decision to take away the last real three years of their lives, two years um, of their lives. And that right there made a lot of them have to start paying attention to where most people in middle school, high school, even college would be like, eh, what am I going to do Friday night was their biggest worry. These students had their lives come to a complete halt within hours, not months, not weeks, hours. Everything in their world was ripped from them. So you want to talk about the biggest wake-up call to this next generation that were in school over the last two years? That right there, because they will promise they do not want to do it to their children because of the damage it did to them, the life they missed out on. And I think that's actually why you're seeing more pay attention. And and yes, you will. you don't necessarily 
some of the major politicians going into these arenas. But you still have people like, as much as I can, we can talk about Turning Point, you do have a lot of youth activist groups on college campuses that are continuing uh, to try to bring in speakers. The question is, are they being allowed to, just like we're seeing our freedom of press being repressed, you're seeing that often right now on these college campuses. Well, and you know, another thing, Scotty, I'm actually glad you brought up Turning Point USA because one of our, our guests that we used to have on our shows, Kayvon, the comedian, he actually just signed with Turning Point USA. I was just telling this to Jamaro this morning. You're almost seeing that ugly rearing head from 2017 of censorship. You know, you had the Babylon Bee that was just censored. Now, now everything is, it used to be, you know, you were racist, so you were you were censored. Now it's, you know, then it was hate speech if if you said something evil. Now it's even if you don't agree with me, yeah. it's hate speech. And this is where I see those Bernie bros resurrecting and the 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 new MAGA Trumpers resurrecting coming together, even though they might not agree on everything, but they're coming together on one thing, and that's censorship. And I feel like kids, especially today, too— they're the ones that are seeing it firsthand because they're the ones on Twitter. They're the ones on Instagram, Snapchat, TikTok. They're seeing it firsthand. Well, you're right, Farron. And the lines have been blurred. In fact, I'll say this waking up this morning. Anybody that knows me and knows my background, I come from a very conservative type household. But I looked at my husband and I said, okay, Chris, are we becoming progressive? <laughs> <laughs> like it was... Because I am agreeing a lot more. He said, it doesn't matter the end, to the, the, what, why the motivation is. It's the end result. We all have the same goal point. Our motives might be different as to why we're reaching that goal point. But in the end, we have the same goal. So this is a chance for us to work together. It's not about Republican versus Democrat, conservatives versus progressives anymore. This is 100% about class structure and the common man versus the elitist. That is the, I think that is the new lines we are seeing and those that have agendas and those that have freedom as their, as their, their only agenda. That is what I believe that we're seeing because these little, you know, I, I want to go back to even four years ago, just get back a little time machine. And we were debating things like healthcare, and homelessness, and and cost of prescription drugs in America. Those were the debates that were dividing us. And I look back at those debates now, and I kind of want to laugh. Not that those aren't important topics, but I'm going, right now, what we're debating is the ability to actually speak. We are debating the ability to go places and what people have the right to work. It has changed 100%. I will go back to the healthcare debate and whether our country can afford it or not any day than what the actual debates, because that was a short term that we could all come, you know, that that was a short term. People weren't losing their jobs because of it. People weren't being silenced. The debate we're having today is dangerous, and it's a part of a bigger picture. And I think that is why, you know, the younger folks are saying, you adults are screwing up this world. We're not going to make the same mistakes you are. They are watching us. Thank heavens. I have more faith and trust in this generation this next generation than I do in my own at this point, because we've already proven we're not so smart. I think so. I agree with that, too. I do agree with that part, because I think they do tend to be trend more to the left on a lot of the stuff. And they do care more about the world, not to mention they're going to have to deal with the sorts of problems um, that the other generations basically created. So I agree with you on that. And I even agree with you um, on this notion of how dangerous the censorship has gotten. I mean, we were talking in the car this morning 
um, about the Babylon Bee and how they got rid of him, how people just making a comment saying, hey, I think it was unfortunate that the um, trans woman was able to swim in the contest and was able to win the contest in that such a way. Well, you can't even say that, apparently, before Twitter takes action in removing you off of the platform. I mean, this is very dangerous. I mean, people need to have the space to be able to say what they need to say. And it seems that that has become off the reservation, even with the issue with Ukraine. I mean, for God's sake, we're talking about literally existential crisis, potentially, especially if NATO starts to get more involved or Russia turns around and says, hey, you giving weapons to that country is basically killing Russians and we no longer accept that as being um, you being outside of the conflict. You've got to be able to have these type of conversations. And the conversation on Ukraine has been wiped. The conversation about the Babylon Bee, regardless of how um, uh, abhorrent the joke was, again, they got rid of them. I mean, whether you're talking about Alex Jones, whether you talk about the COVID stuff, I mean, you can go down the list where this seems to be just plan B at this point or plan A. Um, yeah, I agree with you. It's disastrous, um, to put it mildly. What do you think this is going, though? I mean, do you see a turn in this? I mean, even if it's from the younger generation, do you see this turning a corner at some point where this no longer becomes acceptable in the way that it is now? Well, just like we saw the New York Times coming out two years later and said, oh, yeah, we knew Hunter Biden's laptop existed. Yeah, it was pretty damning. We're sorry. Oops. And there's really not been much accountability for it. It's going to come back to the accountability of what happens after this conflict, because somehow we've made a regional conflict that's halfway around the world that most Americans could have no idea what the regions are or the issues that have gone gone on in this for the, their history. Uh Yet America seems like we're right in the middle of it. I mean, if you, I bet a lot of people probably think that, you know, we're actually being bombed ourselves, that Ukraine's on one side and Russia's on the other side of us because of the way that the mainstream media has made this such a focus the past few weeks. After this conflict is over, and guess what? There will be one. I don't think it'll be 20 years like the U.S. had in Afghanistan. When this conflict is over, will all of the damage, will there be accountability for the misinformation that was put out there? I don't know. And I hate to say those three words. Those are the three words that, that literally make my stomach turn. When I cannot predict how we're going to handle it, I don't necessarily think there'll be apologies to those that were right, from those that were wrong, from those rights that have been taken away from people. We won't see those come back. Uh, we've sort of seen a reversal of that with the coronavirus, but I don't know how that will go. Because gosh forbid, people hate to admit that they were wrong, especially if it shows their agenda. But I think it's going to be how this is handled after the conflict is over here in the U.S. How will people, will the demonization continue or will there actually be, uh, will we continue to see these rights hurt? I want to jump to Project Veritas um, for a moment. Um, This story, the Justice Department is out of control. Um, They spied on Steve Bannon. And now it seems that they were also doing the same thing with Project Veritas and getting Microsoft to basically not disclose the fact that they were doing so. And basically they were stealing the emails and secretly reviewing um, the emails from Project Veritas. Now, I think Project Veritas is trash, if I'm being bluntly honest. By the same token, you shouldn't be able to spy on a media organization um, in the way that they're doing. They're basically ignoring First Amendment rights associated with the company. Now, this has to do with Ashley Biden's journal that they basically had possession of. Mind you, never published, just had possession of. And the government seems to be thinking that there's a crime that took place somewhere, even though they haven't necessarily elucidated where the crime um, had taken place. And from the standpoint of Project Veritas, they're like, look, we're a media organization. Love us, hate us. We're a media organization. We have First Amendment rights just like any other media organization. New York Times even goes into discussing when the Justice Department basically went after them 
And I guess this is their way of trying to sow some level of solidarity. But what do you think about this? I mean, these guys just seem to be completely out of control and no accountability associated with it at all. I mean, they do this stuff with impunity at this point. What are your thoughts? Well, I agree with you that Project Veritas has definitely had some, uh, what's the word? Mm, They've had some honesty issues in the past, transparency issues for it. I have a lot of problem with any sort, a lot of part of any project or any part of any movement that is all about shock and awe. Let me get attention. That is, those people that just throw flames are short-term. They're not necessarily about actually creating real change. They're not about actually making a difference. They're about just literally creating as much attention on themselves as possible. So I have a real issue with that. James O'Keefe, I agree with you. Definitely that is one thing he's famous for. But if you think that, that this is surprising to me or to anybody who's watching, I have no doubt. In fact, that was our joke the other week was like, okay, do we need to go back to discussing yoga pants and cookie recipes as Hillary Clinton once advised us to do? Because there's no doubt that our intelligence agencies are listening to all of us. And guess what? We as Americans gave them that right under the Patriot Act following 9-11. They did not let a crisis go un- go wasted. And so to, to think that now when you've got them on camera and you've got these secret cameras, the problem with the Project Veritas situation is because they've had such issues uh, in the past of editing and not necessarily and, and piecing things together, that makes them to be discredited, which is the whole point of it. But they're doing it to almost anybody that necessarily does not agree with their narrative and their agenda, and they will take them off. But this is why it's so important. And I think that probably, I'm sure at some point you guys have the same feeling I do. It's like, why am I going to go to their defense? Where were they with us? Where were they with those that have been censored? Where, you know, if you don't, I don't care if you're a progressive or you're a conservative news outlet or you consider yourself a news outlet. Um, when your voice is being silenced, silenced, when you're being targeted by the government, we should be united in everybody fighting them. We're not because we feel like that we have to fight for our own little turfs. And so therefore it's a conservative versus Democrat uh, in the media sphere world. Oh, it's a good thing. I'm glad they're taking off. No, I'm not glad they're taking off want anybody taken off. And I think that's what, uh, where Project Veritas should have probably gone and defended other people's freedom of speech, the more people would be willing to put their necks on the line for them as well. And, you know, Scotty, one of the other things, too, is you have Project Veritas being spied on. Then you also had Steve Bannon, who's another one. Um, They're showing how they spied on his lawyer. And you have the DOJ kind of just like, well, you know, oops, sorry. And it's one of these things where you you see it occasionally with liberals. You're seeing it a lot more, especially men re- revolved around Trump. You know, you 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 know the Trump campaign very well. You know, and it's one of these things where is this just another where you just got to deal with it? Or I mean, how are we going to be able to hold these people accountable? Because I feel like every time you know, we're, I think we're going to see a major, major red, red wave, even more so than I think we saw in the Tea Party, which you also were a part of. Um, you know, how how in the heck do we get this solved? Where these institutions that are supposed to be completely unbiased remain that way when clearly they've gone off the beaten path and our bias is all hell. Well, and that's it. They, they, they have that target. And here's the other thing that I want to make people aware of. And I'll say this about the conservative movement, but right now my, the biggest voices that I, I'm worried about are not necessarily Steve Bannon or even James O'Keefe, um, even Sean Hannity, who last night I was shocked as he was defending the Azov regime. I'm literally watching on Fox News going, 
you are literally making these people out to be these hero military militia groups. And what do they have on you, Sean Handy? Everything for the last two years ago that you had been preaching against, you have Lindsey Graham and the two of you are praising actually based pro-Nazi groups. And you think it's wonderful. What? What Are you being blackmailed? Yeah. Uh, but I, I, as much as, you know, those voices right now, the voices I'm concerned about besides ours, which have already um, been greatly reduced, uh, are those like the Jimmy Doors of the world and those like Afshin Ratanzi, those that are out there, you know, we've seen, um, what is it, Russians with attitude been taken out. Zero hedge is starting to be limited. We're seeing, those are the voices right now that I'm going to stand up and I'm going to fight, you know, with all, everything in that I have right now to keep those voices out there. And progressives are in a real hard part in our intelligence agencies because they, they need those guys' voices when it's beneficial to them. But right now, those voices are the, the best key of getting the truth out there of what is actually going on in this world and what the hidden agenda is, the globalist agenda. So, uh, like I said, the, the band, if you think, here's my thing about listening in. I say this about my phone. I say this about my house is still a smart house. I still have ring doorbells all over my house, cameras. I have teenagers, so I weigh my risk. And if the government, if, if I'm not doing anything wrong, then therefore government listen in. So for those guys are like, look, I don't agree with it. I don't think it's right, but you're dumb. If you have any sort of, of a, if you go up and question the government anyway, if you don't think that they're not listening to you, then that's just ignorance on your part at this stage with technology that we have. And, you know, it's funny because when we're talking back to the, the, the kids comments and, you know, how, how kids are getting involved. You know, we played just before you came on a clip from Madeline Albright where she was in this giant college stadium and a, a college student asked her, you know, hey, why are we giving all of these arms to our, our political allies, but we're bombing to the Stone Age Iraq who are doing the same thing as our political allies? And, you know, we had this discussion of, you know, oh, College kids, you know, many saying, oh, college kids wouldn't ask those questions like that. And that's where I said, I was like, no, 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 no. I think they would. And then some, it's just, there aren't any opportunities for college kids today to be asking these political leaders. Like when was the last time you saw a secretary of state sit in the middle of a college like it, like it did in this video and get asked questions by kids? When was the last time you saw any Republican or Democrat on a stage? And that includes presidential debates and be asked anywhere near as fiery of a question uh, as that student asked Madeleine Albright then. You don't get it. Those tough questions that need to be asked are not asked. And God bless those that are, you know, sometimes I don't say ignorance because they're not ignorant, but their naivety of what damage or repercussions, when you don't realize the repercussions from your question, you're willing to ask. And that right there is why, why we have to continue. Um, I have more, like I said, I have more faith in this younger generation because they don't realize the pushback, what can happen when you do ask those questions. And so, you know what? By all means, my generation screwed it up. We're already kind of counting going, okay, what, what's going to happen to us? They don't know that yet. So I hope they continue to. That's what I said. Transparency is the best way for truth to survive. What is it? Washington Post says that, uh, Democracy dies in the darkness. I always say it dies on the pages of the Washington Post and the New York Times. Yeah, well, it's kind of like CNN and this is an apple. Like, really? Rotten apple that's, you know, cored out and there's worms in it. But okay, you're right. That is an apple. Uh, the, you know, the media, that's all a part of this overwhelming uh, propaganda use of. And, and the only thing that's different, 
that's different from what the U.S. and the, and the U.S. Western media is, is maybe they're not directly the check written by the, by the government, but it is. And it truly is more of a propaganda source, unfortunately, these days um, than what, what it's been in the past. When you work for CNN, I always, it's a, look, I always hit my head on this thing. Are they lying or are they corrupt? Meaning, do they know what they're saying is not true when they're staying in a way or do they just believe what they're saying? Which one is it? I mean, you work with some of these people when you were working for CNN, especially during the election, um, and they were coming out with all of these farcical stories about Trump and Russia. What are your thoughts? We have about two minutes, give or take. Okay, real simple on this. Here's the thing. When people go to Georgia, there's, there's three types of schools that are easy to get A's in if you, if you talk a lot in school. Um, you can become a teacher because they talk a lot of school and you don't get in trouble because you're the teacher. Um, you can uh, go into journalism because you actually get praised for talking a lot in journalism. And in the third one, you go into politics and you go into political science. Those three are the best majors for people who talk a lot. So therefore, those that go into journalism and are broadcasters, they talk. And so at CNN, it's all about talking. The question is, how do you, do you advance yourself or do you advance what you believe in? And at any of these mainstream networks is that if you tote the line, you will continue to grow. That's why we see so many people who started off at conservative news outlets like the Daily Caller. They go over and they join CNN. I'm like, what just happened? What you get is if you talk the line, you will continue to rise. As a Democrat, especially in that newsroom, if you toted the line and the stronger you toted the line, the more you would continue to rise. As a Republican in a newsroom like that, I could have definitely, just like with this whole situation now, I could definitely do great for my career and turn on the Republicans, on conservatives. Um, I could definitely bash you, bash Russia and everything going to Ukraine. That would be amazing short term for my career. I don't know how those people sleep at night, but guess what? I definitely would be able to keep my job. A cushion of money. That's how they sleep. And- and you're starting to see a lot of people, too, that claim that they're independent media like Crystal and Sagar and Breaking Points, who are we're independent. We're not we're not taking the CNN or MSNBC talking points. And now that's all that they are. And I feel like it's not even just in these mainstream medias. It's just kind of the media in general. By the way, now. Young Turks, same thing. Yeah. I mean, Annika's Burton interviewed Albright, for God's sake. Yeah. Or, or if, if you are any kind of pro-Russia, then you're a Putin puppet. Yeah. Or even if you ask the question, hey, maybe we should look at Russia's side. How dare you, Putin puppet? Yeah, you can't even bring that up. I mean, that's off the reservation. Scotty, thank you for this. I always appreciate you coming on. I know we're supposed to be on different sides of the political spectrum. And of course, there are going to be issues we bump our heads on. But on this. Maybe Scotty is a progressive. Maybe she is. (laughs) It's like um, Mark Frost, a recovering libertarian. Maybe she's a recovering conservative. Oh, no, there's. She'll never go progressive. But we can can all be friends, though. That's good. Scott Neil Hughes is a former news anchor for News Views Hughes on RT America, as well as a political commentator. She was on CNN during the Trump election in 2016. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. Thomas Ronsack, back in a moment. Fault lines. Live from the divided states of America, sitting atop the transmission tower of truth, taking down hypocrisy one lie at a time. In your ladies' corner, my trolls call me Moscow Mary, but I'm your pierogi princess, your journalist extraordinaire, American. Baron Franzak. And in the left corner, I'm your indefatigable, your ever vigilant, your last man on the wall, your political analyst, Jamal Thomas. Which means you're listening to Fault Lines with Thomas and Franzak.
I was gonna add lib for a split second. I was like, don't do it, You're don't like, do it. Can't. It's just just pausing. Yeah. 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 We've got some great guests coming up. We have um this hour we have Mark Frost, the economist. Um, folks, we're looking at a, basically a um, crash in the housing crisis. It's looming. And so we're going to talk about that this hour. Um, also the ruble thing. And, and the ruble and seeing what that's going to do with the dollar. You have some economists saying, <laughs> hide your kids, hide your wife, the dollar's about to crash. Putin has just internationalized yeah. his currency, for, yeah. uh, for, for God's sake. And, you know, his point where he was like, you guys have heard in the financial markets. Well, if you are putting money, let's say if I put rubles into a U.S. bank and you keep my rubles, what? Um, you know, it's like I'm holding dollars in your bank for various reasons, just logistical reasons. And you decide to keep my currency. What does it indicate to other countries around the world that may be on the bad side of the United States? Do they put money into the United States or Britain or Japan knowing that these guys can rip your currency away in a heartbeat? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's astonishing. That's his point. You guys the are adults in the room. Yeah. You guys Not are damaging the, the um, economic system, at least from the standpoint of the U.S. Which is where maybe some of these kids could come into play. Hey, help these old bag of bones out. <laughs> All right. Get off TikTok and help uh, fix our government. <laughs> All right, well, let's get some in, into head, some headlines for you. In your COVID news, the chief executives of American Airlines, United Airlines, Delta Airlines, and other carriers Wednesday urged President Joe Biden to end a federal mask mandate on airplanes and international pre-departure testing requirements. The airline executives, including the chairman of Southwest Airlines and JetBlue CEO, said in a letter that the restrictions are no longer aligned with the realities of the current epidemiological environment. The Biden administration this month opted to extend current COVID-19 mask requirements at airports, train stations, rideshare vehicles, and other transit modes through April 18th. The order was set to expire March 18th, which was funny because I thought COVID ended the night of the State of the Union, but... Who am I? Who knows? Who am I? In your national news, Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson defended her sentencing practices and her views on expanding the Supreme Court, among other topics, during a second day of sometimes sharp questioning from members of the Senate Judiciary Committee Wednesday as hearings continue over her historic nomination to be the first black woman on the Supreme Court. At one point, the judge said if she is confirmed that she will recuse herself in a case before the court about the use of race in the admissions process at Harvard University. The Harvard Law graduate has been a member of the college's board of, an over, board of overseers since 2016. After three years of complaints and debate, the Army has scrapped its move to have a physical fitness test that is gender and age neutral and will now allow women and older soldiers to pass while meeting some reduced standards. The change, however, will affect only the regular fitness tests that soldiers take annually. Qualifying for certain Army jobs, particularly more demanding combat positions or specialties, such as Ranger School or the Navy SEALs, will continue to require that everyone, regardless of age or gender, must pass the same fitness tests and standards. In your international news, President Joe Biden and Western allies opened the first of three summits focused on increasing pressure on Russian President Vladimir Putin over his war in Ukraine while tending to the economic and security fallout spreading across Europe and the world. Over the course of today, the European diplomatic capital is hosting an emergency NATO summit as well as a gathering of the Group of Seven Industrialized Nations and a summit of the 27 members of the European Union. Biden will attend all three meetings and plans to hold a news conference at the end of the day. We're already getting reports that while all these leaders have been walking in, the only world leader that has not stopped to talk to the press 
President Joe Biden. Saving up his energy, I suppose. He's going to have a busy day. Somebody get him an extra B-12 shot. I know. Uh, (laughs) North Korea launched an intercontinental ballistic missile for the first time since 2017 and a major escalation of tensions over its weapons program. The launch ended a self-imposed moratorium on testing ICBMs and nuclear weapons that North Korea declared in 2018 ahead of diplomatic talks with former President Donald Trump that ultimately collapsed. The country is barred from such tests under United Nations Security Council resolutions. Experts say the weapons tests are meant to force the international community to recognize Kim Jong-un's regime as a nuclear power and lift sanctions that have devastated the country's economy. Your holidays today, National Cocktail Day. We could all use one. National Chocolate Covered Raisins Day. An international day for the right to the truth concerning gross human rights violations and for the dignity of victims. How fitting the day after that bag of bones, Madeline Albright drops dead. Those are your headlines for Thursday, March 24th, 2022. I swear, you bring up my worst impulses. I, I, <laughs> that, I, is, that is an app. I am one of those people who are like, I'm like, yeah, I agree with her on that. And usually people are like, oh, dude, I'm squeamish about the death stuff. I'm not squeamish about the death stuff. This, stuff this death one is I'm not. Life. I'm absolutely not. Because you know why? She wasn't. No, she wasn't. When they asked her about killing 500,000 Iraqi children. It was worth it. She didn't flinch. Nope. Didn't even it. bat an eye. Nope. It, it was worth it. It was worth it. So you know what? I don't uh, flinch now. You're yeah. worth it now, honey. Yeah. You're worth it. You're worth some comedy now. Unfortunately, those were children. She was able to live an entire life. I know that's dark. But at the end of the yeah. day, they were, their lives were snuffed out. All the potential, all of the capability. Think about what the parents had to feel in that moment. I mean, as somebody who was sick as a kid and having her mom or his mom basically over top watching, not being able to do anything, just completely incapable of doing anything to remedy um, this kid's stress, grief, pain, the fact that that kid is dying. And, you know, this parent have this kind of philosophical, ethical responsibility um, that's ingrained and to be able to take care of that kid. And it's like due to forces outside of your control, pushed by people like Albright. That kid lost their lives, and that happened to 500,000 of those kids. And it wasn't even those kids that were killed in the bombings. You also then had kids that were killed because sanctions. they weren't getting medical supplies. Yeah, the sanctions. That, that's, I mean, yeah, the sanctions, basically, that these guys were putting on. Um, and that's, that's basically what this um, 60 Minutes report was. These sanctions have been killing a lot of kids. Are you okay with this? In which case, yeah, it's worth it. And that's the other thing, too, is that a lot of these sanctions, at least with this— you know, with with Iraq, they were sanctioning medical supplies. Yes. And there was a, a tweet uh, of of an American citizen now, but he grew up in Iraq as a child and said that he almost died multiple times because he wasn't he they didn't have asthma medication for him. He suffered from asthma. And that's the thing that, you know, when you talk about these sanctions again, these these oligarchs in Russia, they're not really taking a hit because, again, the United States sanctions these countries as if they think that it's run the way our country is. Yeah. You had all these rich-ass people holding all this money and, you know, they're, they're job creators and tycoons. And it's like, and also all the money that they funnel into lobbying and funnel into Congress— a lot of these other countries, they don't do that, which is kind yeah, of astonishing. They call, you know, Russia authoritarian, even though some dumb Americans will call him a communist country. It's like, read a book. Yeah. Um, you know, but they'll call Putin authoritarian. Meanwhile, Zelensky just expelled 11 political parties and his main opposition party from Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Not really seeing much on that. Tucker talked about it, but then kind of shied away from it. Um 
You have him shutting down state TV channels. Mm -hmm. He was actually the first one to do it. But here they'll be like, well, well, Putin is his censored Facebook. Yeah. Okay. That's one compared to Zelensky's 12 that I just mentioned. By the way, not just one. 13 I just mentioned. I mean, from the standpoint of Facebook and Twitter, if you are indeed in somebody else's country, let's say you're in Russia, and the only thing you're putting on your network or that you would allow, you would not allow the Russian position. You will allow the Ukrainian position, even up to the point of killing Russians, apparently. I mean, why would they allow something like that? That is literally, by definition, a propaganda outlet at that point. You only have one particular point of view, and you are censoring any other point of view, even within the context of the country itself. Why would they allow that? Why would they allow that? We would, would we allow that? Meaning just have, like, your country is at war, and the only side that they would allow to give is the opposing or the opposition. Yeah. And, and I think the United States needs to come out here for a second, and, you know, which they never will. But in a perfect world, people need to start demanding, folks at the top, what is your definition of democracy? What exactly is your definition? Because from what I'm seeing, we're backing up an authoritarian regime at this point. Ukraine is under martial law, okay? Martial law means an authoritarian regime. And or and it mean also meaning that the military takes over, that the military is enforcing the law. And who is one of the main fractions of that military that's kind of crazy As of and kind of taken over? What, right sector? And as Scotty said, if, if Sean Hannity—I'm going to have to go back and watch last night— if Sean Hannity was out there pressure. defending the Azov Battalion. Pressure. I think it's pressure. A, I don't think Sean Hannity knows anything um, about Ukraine. I don't even know if he could pick it out on a map. Um, B, he probably knows nothing about Azov Battalion. Um, C, he is probably dealing with the exact same pressures that many of these other people are dealing with on this very specific issue to toe the line of uniformity. And I mean, I, I, mean, I, I guess I don't look at Sean Hannity as being this kind of outlier. I look at Tucker Carlson as more of an outlier of being able to push back on those various positions like that. Hannity, I get the feeling he's just talking head. But Aaron, Aaron Mate, when he went on to talk with Dan Abrams of, of News Nation, which don't even waste your time. He doesn't even have viewers anyway. He's asked us to come on. But Dan Abrams? <laughs> he didn't ask us to come on before, buddy. So uh, toodaloo. But, oh, that's the guy from um, recently, right? Yes, yeah. recently. Okay. Yeah, that guy. That, that human scrotum. Yes, yes. I have a lot of human scrotums in, on my on my list. <laughs> um, but but at the really top of it is Madeline Albright today. Uh, but you know, Aaron Mate said he was like Phil Donahue was was protesting Iraq on air, yep. and all of a sudden, boop, see you later, buddy. Ed Schultz was going for Bernie when everyone was for Hillary. Boop. See you later. Jesse Ventura. Jesse Ventura going against the war. What his contract set him on the sidelines so yeah. he couldn't speak over the course of that year or two. And, and that's the one thing that always is that makes me laugh with all these people. Of, oh, this is Russian government or you're paid by Putin or what? It's like, you know what? I would rather be paid by him to where I can say and call out my own government. Yes. Than to sit there and toe the, the American talking point propaganda line. And like uh, um, Elijah Manier, as, as they said in the chat, for him, they said, you know, his quote needs to be written in stone of, this is the most propaganda that I've ever seen in my entire it lifetime. It's shocking. It's like, very it's, shocking. I mean, I get it. And, and you remember in the history books, seeing like the World War II, yeah. with the, we can do it, and all those posters. This is that like doesn't far touch it. worse. Yeah, that doesn't touch it. I mean, this is astonishing. Like, where you have a complete uniformity of point of view and going so far as to be like, we're just going to eliminate these other points of view. Like, we're, you know, we're not even going to acknowledge that they have a standing to have a point of view. I mean, it's astonishing. They went so far as, but Russia doesn't have security concerns. Are you serious? 
You're talking about a sovereign nation doesn't have security concerns. And all of them will repeat it. Each and every one of them. Putin is crazy. This is insane. They would focus on what's taking place in the West, ignoring what is taking place in the East. They would say the Russian military is losing the war. I mean, and it's like, what are you guys using for this? Ukrainian sources say, okay, great. Well, and you had you had on the Hill Rising, which mind you, Kim Iverson, I believe, has her days numbered. Um, but but I she's really doing God's work over there yeah. against Ryan Grimm and Robbie Soav. But you know, she said, Russia warned us. Why didn't we understand? And they're like, Well, he didn't have to invade. And she goes, What were the other alternatives? Uh, yeah, she says, What were the other alternatives? Right. He gave all of these options and said, knock it off. Yes. And then, well, he should have come to the negotiating table. He was she's at the like, negotiating she's table. Like, he did that eight years ago. Yes. And they keep <laughs> you know, they keep going back on what they said. And it was like she literally put out every single argument that they had. Yeah. And she's like, you know, hey, I'm against the invasion. Yeah. But I mean, they don't want to occupy, they just want it where they are following the rules like everybody yes. else. Yes. And, you know, and, and nope. And she even said, she's like, you know, is this a thing from Hillary Clinton, like kind of her um, coming home to roost with Putin of trying to bleed him out, like what happened yeah. with us in Afghanistan? Yep. And what does Robbie Sohav say without without even batting an eye? And mind you, their studios are right next door. So I hope you hear me. Yeah. Um, but literally doesn't even bat an eye and says, bleed him out. Yeah, bleed him out. It's think like of, you just said think, that you will let the last Ukrainian exactly. die. Yes. How American are yeah. you? How like, American, We're going to fight, fight Russia to the last dead Ukrainian. That's basically the argument. And all of them, when they're making that argument, always downplays the threat issue. Meaning because that's the only way you can make that work of saying, well, he should have done this. He should have done that. And then you explain all of that. Well, he should have found some other option. Okay, what is the other option? I mean, you basically surrounded a country for the last, what, 20, 30, 40 years. And with all assurances— have basically been a lie. Um, you've toppled a government in 2014 of Ukraine. And by the way, they act as if the coup government is somehow a revolution as opposed to a coup government. Right. Not to mention calling their own other Ukrainians terrorists and running a bloody campaign for the last eight years, killing them off. I guess the question that they really need to answer is, if not this, what? Well, and then the other thing that, that was coming up yesterday on the Hill Rising debate. And by the way, like also, said, not for the war. I hate yeah. war. I find it to be senseless, especially in this case, when all of them basically understood behind the scenes, we're not joining NATO. None of them would say right. it. However, though, I, I, as, as you keep looking at this, and again, I'm going to have, I'm going to play John Mersheimer's um, speech on my channel on Saturday, um, just for people to understand it, because you really see, and he goes through the whole history of it. It's very dry. You know, it's like a college class yeah. or a college course, but it's so good just to look back. But what he says because now the big topic, and this came up on the Hill Rising debate yesterday, at least they're having the debate, but they said, oh, this is um, this is an invasion. And, and Kim Iverson kept saying, no, no, this is a civil war. Yes. They, these guys are cousins. They're brothers. Right. And they go, no, this is an invasion. This isn't a civil war. He invaded. And it's Lou like, Hans, no, 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 no. If you look at John Mersheimer, he shows how there's the Russian-speaking side. Exactly. There's the Ukrainian-speaking side. And they're all bundled into one country. But that's the rub. Just they like don't... how you had North, how they were anti-slavery, yes. and the South was pro-slavery. But see, they don't acknowledge the West. In, I mean, they don't acknowledge the East in this. I mean, right. even when they're doing the coverage, they don't acknowledge, meaning the majority of the Ukrainian military is in the East, not the West. That military is basically being surrounded and being smashed. They even asked for, to be able to leave, which would, they were told, no, we don't cover that part. Like, that's, it's astonishing. Like, how do you ignore the bulk of the military being in the East and just focus on the West? It's very weird and bizarre. it doesn't fit your narrative. It doesn't fit the narrative. In their heads, the Russian-speaking Ukrainians aren't Ukrainians. And that's that's the only 
that's the only conclusion I can come to. I mean, they act as if this started two weeks ago or three weeks ago. No, this started eight years ago. And even before that, it started. And it's and, like— And not calling it a civil war, I think, is such a disservice because that is exactly— what it is. Yes. You had Ukrainian people killing other Ukrainian yes. people from the West to the East. That is a civil war. Ukrainian military. Yes. Ukrainian military. Yes. Killing other Ukrainians. Yes. Calling them terrorists. But in then order to make that they work. were called Russian separatists. Now they're Ukrainians. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Funny how that worked. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Let's like, like how Madeleine Albright was a warmonger and a killer, but now according to who said it in the chat, Andrea Mitchell said that she was a beacon for all women. Beacon of freedom for all women. Yeah. Beacon. It's what women aspire to. Killing five or Let me know how, how hot the grilled cheese sandwiches are down there, Madeline, on your seventh layer of hell. And on that, on that, you guys are listening to Fault Lines, Thomas and Franzak. We'll be back in a moment with Mark Frost. We're going to have a conversation on the housing market. This was a topic you brought up, actually. And I was looking at some of the reports on it. Yeah, shaky, to put it mildly, not to mention yeah. the cost um, that people are having to deal with. I mean, we haven't necessarily recovered from the COVID stuff. And then also, what is it going to mean that gas is going to be paid in rubles from here on out? If you're going to pay us, if you want gas, if you want wheat, if you want anything, rubles. And the only place you can get rubles from is Russia. We're going to figure out how that's going to work going forward. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. Thomas Franzak, back in a moment. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with my fiery co-host, I'm Farron Franzak, coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. If you guys live in the D.C. area, you can catch us on radio at 105.5 FM and 1390 AM. We're also kicking around in Kansas City at 102.9 FM and 104.7 FM. If you guys are digging what Farron and I are putting down whatever platform you you're consuming you this content on, give us a like or share that audio or video. If you want to join in on the conversation, you could do so by phone at 202 521-1320. We're also monitoring chat and we're also monitoring tweets. At least I believe we are. Your engagement definitely helps make this show what it is. So definitely don't be shy. And we should be taking your calls at 945. Um, but I want to go for it. Uh, break into this really quick. I'm going to look it up. But um, we're seeing in the chat, um, just an RT News reporting that Hunter Biden and George Soros are linked to the Ukrainian biological labs. Really? I'm going to look this up. But yeah, they're, the chat's telling us that it's coming down from RT News. So yeah, jump into that. We'll I'm curious about that on one. That. Um, wow, man. Hunter Biden is everywhere, man. He is just on fire. Maybe that's why they didn't want his laptop going on. <laughs> Dear Dad, about those Ukrainian bio labs, <laughs> I bought my stripper girlfriend and she loved it. By the way, BTW, George Soros says hi. Yep. Crack <laughs> Saw is him awesome. there. Yep. <laughs> um, right. Well, let's do this. Let's get into the um, story. So housing market. And this, the housing market is an issue. I mean, other issues have taken the foreground, um, but it is definitely of concern. I'll just read the top. It is increasingly expensive to buy a home. Not only are housing prices increasing by double digits annually, but mortgage rates have been on the rise this week and have topped 4% for the first time since 2019. That's pushing more buyers to take out adjustable um, rate loans or mortgages. One of the financial products blamed for the 20 or 2006 housing crisis. The share of mortgages that are adjustable rate mortgages doubled to 10% in January, up from 10-year low of 4% in January 2021, according to data from CoreLogic. ARMs, this was the aforementioned 
a mortgage, offer an initial low rate for a period of years, typically anywhere from three to 10 years, and then the rate adjusts after that, usually annually, based on fluctuating benchmark price. Now, my aunt had one of these, and her rent skyrocketed by a significant factor to the point where she could not afford the rent. And this was something that basically was hitting a lot of people. And so now, where you have inflation going through the roof, um, you have a situation meaning their currency or their dollar goes less or not as far as it used to, you also have simultaneously prices going up from the standpoint of housing. Clearly, this is somewhat of a disaster. To have a conversation about it, we're joined with Mark Frost. He's an economist, professor, consultant, drummer, Eagle Scout, Marine, capitalist, Schubertonarian, recovering libertarian. Mark, what's going on, my man? You doing okay this morning? I'm doing really well. <clears throat> the weather's getting crazy here in North Georgia. Is it? I heard, yeah, that you guys are going to get some crazy, crazy weather this week. Yeah, so in the morning you wake up cold and you got your heater on, and then in the afternoon you have your air conditioner running. Same here. It's been that way here for the while, <laughs> for the last few um, um, few days too. Uh, but Mark, you are the person we want to talk to on this. This seems like a recipe for disaster. Um, you basically have prices going up, meaning oil is going to go up. We have no idea what is going to take place from the standpoint of the ruble and how that's going to break down. Um, we have other supplies that we're going to be missing from the standpoint of Russia because of the sanctions and everything else. There are potential issues with China because we're talking about sanctioning them. And this is even after inflation that had been going through the roof and had been eating through American salaries, especially especially the people at the bottom or the middle of the income spectrum. And now we have this issue of housing where it seems that the housing prices are also going through the roof at the exact same time where people's income or currency is undermined. What are your thoughts on this? I mean, how long has this been going on and what should we expect going forward in the housing market? Sure. First of all, my first thought is I think you guys are onto something. You should come up with a skit, like a minute skit every show for and call it uh, Hunter's Letters to Dad. (laughs) Oh, (laughs) she did that. Dear Dad. Well, you did her laptop thing. Yeah. Hunter Biden's laptop um, or or his, (laughs) what is it? Hunter Biden's web browser history. Oh, that yeah, was the we, one that you did. Google yeah. search history. Like, what is the difference between barisma and barista? Like, <laughs> where can I, like, Yelp reviews for local strippers? Like, <laughs> 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 yeah, just think of what Saturday Night Live could do it if they weren't, you know, part of the game. So Exactly. So what are your thoughts on the housing market? How long should we expect this to take place? And is this as much of a disaster as I think it is and basically talked it up to be? What are your thoughts? tend to agree. These are one of those things that because there's so many moving parts right now, it's almost impossible for anybody to legitimately, you know, get on TV or radio and say, this is the way this is going to happen. But what's clear is the Fed, from what I'm from the Fed watching I'm doing, the Fed is clearly, they've got the signal. They're not calling it transitory anymore. I mean, if you read the Fed speak, they're clearly worried about inflation. They're more worried about inflation uh, than they are employment right now. And so it seems clear to me the party's over that over the next six months, they're going to be, uh, tightening the money supply. And if the fed speak is correct, now they might just be lying and trying to fool the markets because the fed does that sometimes. But if it, if it is what I think it is, the fed realizes they're going to have to drastically shrink the stock of, uh, money in the economy uh, to get inflation under control. And another way of saying that is they're going to have to purposely put the economy into a recession uh, to uh, stop the inflation bubble. Because if I'm right and other economists that worry about it uh, like me, 
if it is going to be a 70 style uh, sort of inflation, most of us are worried about not will we only have inflation, but I'm forecasting a pretty major recession. Uh, let's just call it what, I, what the press will call it. it. I'm forecasting a pretty big crash probably sometime this year. And that worries me because there's so many other things going on right now. I mean, it seems like it was just yesterday. The only thing anybody talked about was COVID-19. You know how I feel about that. And then suddenly everything just got eclipsed. And the only thing that matters anymore is Ukraine. And the, the, the thing is, I understand that it moves markets because it's in the headlines and it makes people and it changes people's perception of the future. But what happens in Ukraine from a global GDP perspective is almost irrelevant. If you if you completely removed Ukraine from the map, the global GDP would would barely have a hiccup. I mean, it's just not a significant part of the world with respect to the global uh to, to the global economic system. Now, that doesn't mean that, you know, we don't have a heart or we don't feel or something like that, but it does mean that from an economic perspective, it just isn't that important. And what I'm concerned about is this administration, closest thing to a schizophrenic I've ever seen in my life. I mean, it's almost like they have several brains, and one part of the Biden administration is trying to, for instance, uh, one part of them seems to be trying to go this way, and another part is trying to go this other way. I just read yesterday, I think it was the Wall Street Journal, where they were saying that uh, the Biden administration is trying to promote a new benefit that would have uh, uh, that would help people because of the rising price of fuel. That would help poor people, and basically, what they're wanting to do, they've waged war against our own energy independence. And now they want to pay people in the name of environmentalism, burn fossil fuels. After all this effort to, you know, to beat people up over, oh, okay, this is killing the environment and we have to do this. It's a crisis. Uh, and to me, it's just, I don't understand it. Again, I used to think it was a conspiracy. I used to think this was, you know, some Schumpeterian, you know, dark room planned you know, role of socialism coming to America. And I realize now it's not. It's literally an incompetent, uh, or maybe the better word is a dysfunctional administration that doesn't have any core central value. And almost like just some, I think this administration is ADD. They can't concentrate on the things that are important and they get distracted by the things that aren't important. Uh, and that, it, and those examples go on and on and on. And that's my problem with the administration. I don't hate them or anything. I just think that I, I can't think of one thing they've done, I think, that is good. Not even one, nothing significant. I mean, I'm sure they've done something little like, you know, uh, you know, make some city, you know, give some award or something. I don't know. But in, in, in terms of significant macroeconomic policy, there's nothing this administration has done that I think is, serves the American people. You have a lot of, of talk, Mark, on, um, you know, kind of this housing bumble and, the, you know, how a new generation of buyers is jumping into the market at what may be the worst possible time as far as the real estate market. Um, and talking about how this bubble may about be about to go bust um, and that, you know, 
this actually could possibly be worse than the 2008 financial crisis that we saw in regards to the housing market. Uh, what do you kind of predict happening? Because again, we've got a lot going on. And you said like the, this administration, I do agree with you, is very ADD. They're all over the place. One weekend, they're talking Ukraine. Then on Tuesday, they're passing like the sexual harassment law. Then after that, they're wor worried about the daylight savings law. And then they're talking about sanctions with Russia. It's like, what the heck is going on? Um, so when it comes to this housing bubble, do you foresee it bursting soon? And do you think it'll be worse than 2008? I don't see it bursting soon. I do see it bursting probably. If it's in, First of all, disclaimer, it's impossible to accurately forecast these things for obvious reasons. You know, they're black swans. They're, they're low probability, high, but high impact statistical events. So uh, what I see is, is what, what, what I see is, is what happened is a combination of what happened in the 70s and what happened in 2008 and 2009. And what you have is a Federal Reserve, when the Fed rains money down onto the economy, that money trickles down and it goes into various places. Think of it as a river coming down from a mountain and then the river splits and it goes into places. And that money trickles down into the economy and it gets to the places, uh, theoretically, you know, where it finds its best bang for its buck. And uh, the problem is right now is back in 2008, the Fed had not shot so many bullets out of its gun. I mean, the Fed has pretty much shot five bullets out of its six shooter, and it has one bullet left, in my opinion. I mean, it doesn't have. So if three more crises pop up at the same time, the Fed can't intervene without serious risk of hyperinflation. and. And when I when, when economists start talking about hyperinflation instead of inflation, they're worried. And the number one threat in this country right now is inflation. And I've been saying that for two years because it's just office. It's just obvious. Uh, Schumpeter in his great book, Capitalism, Socialism, and Democracy, chap or uh, Section Two on Socialism, first uh, statement: Can socialism work? Of course it can. Then the third. Part he gets into, and, and he starts talking specifically about the first thing you have to do to bring on an authoritarian government is you have to destroy the middle class by bringing on a severe onset of inflation. Uh, that's, that's straight from the Marxist playbook. You have to destroy the middle class's ability to be independent if you want to have that type of a society. And again, I used to worry that's what was being done. I realize almost certainly now it's just good old-fashioned incompetence, uh, because it seems like more people in the Biden administration than not are like little kids. They think they can pass a law and get what they want without paying any price whatsoever for it. They think everything is free, and it's not. When government chooses to do something, that there's a cost to that and a benefit. No, no doubt, some people benefit, but other people suffer a cost. And it just seems immoral that consistently on a regular basis when we have these crises in our country, the people that end up really paying the price of it are the people least able to do so. I'm curious, is this a situation where they are being led by their values? And what I mean by that is over the course of what, 20, 30, 40 years, U.S. policy has basically been to never allow another country to challenge this kind of U.S. hegemony, meaning to never allow another Soviet Union to basically take place, which basically puts you at odds um, with other countries that care about their sovereignty 
and care about their own um, personal space and defense. So if this has been taking place over years, it seems that Biden has ended up almost at the culmination of all of the policies that has basically been taking place where he has basically deal with the culmination of those policies, not just from him as president, but for Obama, going back to Bush, going back to Clinton, et cetera, and it's kind of surrounding um, the Russian government. So I guess, is this one of those situations where he's making moves almost in this kind of tactical way to try to deal with one crisis after the next that we've basically been edging on for the course of years? And it just so happened that this landed at the time of COVID. Meaning if this landed and there was no COVID, maybe the United States wouldn't necessarily be in the situation or Europe wouldn't be in the situation that they're in um, where you have this massive amount of inflation at the exact same time where they're trying to sanction China, Russia, and India, apparently. I mean, how are they going to manage this? I mean, and, and I hope the question makes sense. If you have a situation where, let's say, they sanction Russia further, and let's say China remains, quote unquote, independent, and they decide to sanction China, and inflation is going through the roof at the exact same time, how does the financial system manage all of these irons in the fire that are basically taking place simultaneously? Yeah, I, I, yeah, I was thinking about your question, and I don't completely understand what you're... So what I'm asking is basically... Right now, you have inflation, you have a housing issue that is basically taking place, you have supply chain breaks, and those are before we've even priced in what is taking place in Ukraine, what may take place in China, and maybe even um, the sanctions that they may apply to India. I guess what I'm getting at is if the financial system is already maxed out as is, meaning the tools that they have at their disposal are not entirely sufficient in order to kind of maintain or prevent either inflation, recession, or stagflation, how is the financial system going to be able to accommodate these other shocks to the system, either in the sense of energy or, for that matter, in the sense of trade, where the surge applies and whatnot, we are not getting access to. I guess I'm asking, how does the financial system, either in Europe or the United States, accommodate all of these crises the, at the exact same time, some of which seem to have opposite means of trying to resolve? I see what you're saying. Uh, well, to answer your question, it, it will accommodate it, but not without great shocks of disequilibrium, right? What we have is, is we have the government has thrown everything into disequilibrium and markets like to tend toward equilibrium. And when markets tend toward equilibrium, people benefit and other people get hurt. That's the nature of equilibrium. That's what we mean by it. And so markets always want to clear supply and demand of whatever we're talking about, whether it's money or whether it's corn. And uh, what I think is dumb about sanctions. Sanctions certainly cause pain. I mean, uh, it certainly put the pressure on, uh, it certainly increased pressure on Putin. It, what they're trying to do with the sanctions is make the Russian inner circle uh, turn on Putin, which if, I don't see that happening. Because I was going to say, that's the one thing that the United States is, I feel like, so dumb about right now, is they think that these oligarchs that they're sanctioning are like the oligarchs here, where you have your Bill Gates and all of them. They, they don't have money in politics the way that we do here. Yes. Also, you actually touched on something that I think is part of the problem. You know, I've been to Russia. I've traveled through it. I've met with the people. I don't mean I just went to an airport. I went all over Russia. I've also been all over China. Russians and Americans have a lot in common. That's something Americans and a lot of Russians don't realize. When I got off into the boondocks in Russia, people just came around to meet me because they'd never met an American before. And, you know, that sort of a thing. And Russians, just from a cultural, just a general sense of life, have a lot in common with Americans. We kind of have that, you know, 
that forget you kind of attitude when we get annoyed and that kind of stuff. It, there's a certain, there's a bit of national, there's some excess nationalism and things like that. In China, it's very, very different. So what I think we're doing is we're messing with the wrong enemy because I've never believed Russia, just by looking at a globe and knowing its history, is a, any sort of a direct threat to the United States. It might be a direct threat to friends of friends, but it's not any direct threat to us because there's no real reason for Russia and the United States to dislike each other unless uh, outside of hawks on both sides. Uh, I think we did Russia, or, or more specifically, we did the Soviet, ex-Soviet Union a horrible disservice uh, when the Soviet Union collapsed. We went in and said, you know what would be great? Every country on earth should be a mini-me. They should be a, a mini-United States. And this is how you should structure things. And the best formula is go cold turkey. Go cold turkey from, from feudalism and then communism and then go straight into capitalism. And they did that. And uh, the vast majority of the public, having never even had a concept of a market economy before, had no idea what they were voting for, what they were selling or buying. And the smart money in Russia got a lot of the resources, and we built the very oligarchs that we claim we hate. That's what bothers me, because every country can't be a United States. There, to, to, to have a United States-style republic requires a United States-style culture. I also think that maybe a lot of these countries, they don't want a, a United States-style because they see some of the disadvantages that have happened. You know, 91 is not that long ago, and there were problems in 91 with this country. And a lot of people saw that we were making money through the military-industrial complex very early on. I mean, we were bombing Kosovo not too long and in Serbia and all that stuff not long after. But we have a question from the chat that I think is actually a really good question. Um, uh, from Big Boss 22 he said, um, if he's seeing high inflation across the world and if you think the next recession will be global, if it is global, where are the safe havens for investment? That's a good, that is a good question. Uh, with a globalized world like we have right now, uh, yes, it will be global. And there is a there, there's a joke in the you know in financial circles when the United States you know sneezes, the world catches a cold. And that's very true. The exception to that is countries like Russia and China that are a little more self sufficient in those things, and they you know they have we have less power over them. But the safe havens are things that have intrinsic value. So I still like people, if, if you can afford it, go buy some real estate uh, because inflation's gonna hit that. You're gonna, you'll at least keep up with inflation because historically, when, when inflation comes, the things that, that get hit hard are the things that uh, have real value. And so you want, to have something that's climbing in value, that's an intrinsic asset. Uh, I personally like gold. I like, I'm a big currency trader. So for instance, when this first started and it looked like uh, clearly to me as a, as a military World War II, uh, it's, you know, historical enthusiast. I don't think I'm an expert, but I've studied it 30 years. Uh, what's going on in uh, Ukraine is a World War II style battle. And it's clear uh, 
Putin was given information that probably wasn't accurate. Let's, I think we can say that safely without worrying about whether we're distorting the truth or anything. And when things like that happen, uh, what we have is a, a, a situation where the whole world is going into sanctions. The whole world is saying, oh, you can't buy this, you can't buy that, you have to do go through this payment system, you can't go through that payment system. And it makes people nervous. And here's where we're making our mistake. There's never been, to my knowledge, except for North Korea, and even then there was, actually, even then there was an exception, because China helped them. When you put sanctions on a country, when you put economic sanctions, especially if the sanctions involve commodities, remember what a commodity is. You don't care which widget you get, because widgets are interchangeable. You don't care whether you get a particular barrel of oil. You know, when you buy oil, you buy a barrel of oil. You're not buying a particular barrel of oil. And so that's the whole nature of a commodity. And uh, commodities are easy to cheat on. So uh, when this first started, I bought rubles. I bought a bunch of rubles. And I sold half of them uh, this morning, and I made about a tenfold return on my money. Because I knew when the rubles plummeted, it was undervalued. And so that's where the opportunities are going to be internationally is because what it's going to depend on with respect to international inflation is which country prints money more than the other countries. So if the United States prints four times as much money proportionally than uh, some other country, then the United States dollar is going to fall. That's just how these things work. It's, a, it's literally controlled by supply and demand. And uh, my worry on these commodity things is that we're going through all this effort. We're putting uh, our working poor under a lot of stress. Russia's uh, impoverished are going to be severely hammered. Uh, and the people that are are getting what they want are a leadership who I think is operating partly off of ego. Uh, and here's how people cheat on commodities. Let's say that, so we've put a sanction on Russian oil and the price of oil starts rising and rising and rise, rising. And Russia says, we're going to sell our oil cheap, 10% cheaper than you can buy it anywhere else. Where do you think people are going to go buy their oil from? Why do you think Costco's around? Why do you think Walmart's around? Yeah, people are going to buy it cheaper. Arbitrage. You know, I mean, we even have a name for it. It's called arbitrage. And so what you're going to find, sanctions are like the dying seminar in a, in, in a university. The first week, you got 100 people show up. Everybody's excited. By the, by the eighth week, you got 10 people, you know. And it's the same way with, with sanctions. Everybody is all gung-ho sanctioned because they, they're not idiots. They're just naive, and they haven't sat down and thought the problem out. So they're almost like religious zealots. Oh, we'll put sanctions on them. That'll teach them. Well, the truth is, when it comes to oil, uh, people don't care where they get their oil. I don't care whether my oil came from the oil of a ruthless dictator, from the, from, from the ground controlled by a ruthless dictator, or the ground controlled by Sister Teresa. I don't care because it's a commodity. And commodities, by definition, are homogenous. They're non-differentiable. And so since it's a commodity, 
people are going to cheat. You're going to see people. You're going to see reflagged tankers. You're going to see you're going to see every loophole used. And yes, that adds some additional cost. But Russia can do power play things too, like say, okay, if you guys want to play hardball, then fine, don't buy our oil. But anybody that wants to buy our oil has to pay in rubles. By the way, it, the effect on the international community from the standpoint of perception of them basically keeping the Russian reserves like that. I mean, this is not the first time something like this has happened in the West. They did the same thing to uh, Venezuela. I mean, I believe it was the British banks. You had the same thing taking place with Afghanistan, where Biden keeps, what, $9 billion that are held in U.S. banks and just steals the money because it's in the U.S. banks. Well, same thing with Russia. At this point, Russia had their reserves in different currencies. It is cheaper, or at the very least, I guess, more advantageous to have those foreign reserves in banks um, in those countries. And Europe. The United States basically said, we're just going to keep the money that's in our banks. Sorry. In which case, Russia turns around and said, well, fine. From here on out, you're going to pay us some rubles. The only place you're going to get rubles is from us. So what effect does stealing money like that have on the world community and the way that they perceive banks? And I guess not even the legitimacy of those banks, but I guess knowing that the money is going to be there or for that matter, having this perception of being on outs with the U.S., knowing that they were willing to take these steps. Does that undermine the financial system? Or is that just considered a one-off? How is that viewed? I don't think it undermines the financial system per se. I think what it does is it adds an additional cost to a transaction. So remember back if you took you know, micro, you know, the microeconomics 101 and the concept of transaction costs, when transaction costs get really hard, or, or excuse me, when transaction costs become high, making deals becomes hard because the, there's all these transaction costs that are involved. And an efficient economy has lower transaction costs than an uh, than a inefficient sort of economy. So the advantage of that, so so, so so to answer your question, what I think is actually going to happen in this is that uh, I bet three months from now, uh, this won't be talked about much, is, is my best bet. Because I think what the United States, I can't prove it, but my best guess is the Biden administration is thankful Putin invaded. It took the heat off the things that were starting to kind of get through to them. So we're not talking about inflation as much as we used to. We're not talking about COVID-19. We're not talking about all the Biden administration failures right now. We're talking about, uh, you know, Biden sees an opportunity to see him to see himself seen as a decisive leader on the right side, et cetera, et cetera. And, uh, and that's made him happy. All you have to do is just watch his interviews. If somebody asks him a question on inflation or oil or Afghanistan or whatever, he clearly is not happy talking about the subject. But if you ask him a question about Ukraine, his, his, energy, it's, his energy level obviously rises. Is he, he clearly is happier to be talking about this than to be talking about anything else in his administration. And that worries me because I do worry, you know, in about, you know, wag the dog type scenarios and whether it was planned that way or not, it's having the effect of taking the heat off of Biden. And, you know, it's so interesting that you say that because I always thought that form of thinking, too. But then I watched yesterday, Scott Ritter was on the gray zone 
And he said that this is actually the worst thing for Biden and that Biden wants nothing to do with this because he said that he would rather be in China. He'd rather be in Malaysia. He'd rather be in Beijing because he knows that he's actually going to get some money out of that with the United States versus Ukraine. It's just going to be giving all this money and making the problem even worse. Whereas if he was with China, he'd be making a lot more money. And and, and this would actually kind of settle the economy um, and, and settle a lot of the other scores. And so I, I just kind of found that point interesting. Do you, could you kind of see that side of the, of the aisle as well? Yeah, I'm a big uh, Scott Ritter fan. And uh, if he said that, it means that I need to at least sit down and ponder it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You got, you got to watch this interview yesterday with the gray zone. Cause I was shocked. I was like, wait, what? He would rather be in China. And then some of it makes sense. Uh, yeah. I think, I think there is some truth to that. I think the old world Democrats, Hillary Clinton, uh, Joe Biden, those, you know, that old, that old guard Democrats. Uh, I guess I didn't take note when I was like younger and kind of notice it. But, you know, because I I usually thought of hawks as being Republicans. My goodness. In the past. Serious hawks. And yeah. <laughs> in the past. I used to think the same. Not anymore. I mean, I had, I didn't realize it until I started thinking about it. And I'm like, my goodness. We just had Scotty Nell Hughes where she woke up and she's like, am I a progressive? I mean. <laughs> well, it's almost as if they do it for different reasons mm-hmm. where Republicans will be, you know, strength where Democrats is like, oh, these are humanitarian bombs. These bombs don't really hit good people. They just, you know, they dance around good people and only hit the bad people. And they use it as justification for it. I was telling, um, um, Baron yesterday about Obama and Libya, like when I used to be a Democrat. And they would, you know, chest stump about how great Libya was doing and how great Obama did and how Michael Steele one day pointed out, yeah, have you checked Libya recently? And then when I kind of had my political awakening and you look at the country, it's like, oh, my God, the first black president ended up creating slavery in one of the richest countries in Africa. Like, yeah, it's it's a political awakening, to put it mildly, Mark. Um, but Mark, we're, oh, please finish. Uh, give you a last comment and we'll close. Oh, uh, no, I was just going to agree with you. So, yeah, that's a, you know, unfortunately, that is, you know, sort of true in that regard. Yeah, it's almost like the, yeah, unfortunately, it is true. Uh, Mark, thank you for this, man. I really appreciate you joining us, have this conversation about the economic realities of our world um, and what's basically coming up. Uh, I wanted to give an update really quick um, from Richie. Thank you so much in the chat. He showed me, it was actually on Telegram. And if you're here in the U.S., you can't view RT News on Telegram. Whereas he's in Glasgow, Scotland, so he can. Um, So he's my little like insider. (laughs) And this is what was shown on Telegram from RT News. Hunter Biden and Soros linked to biolabs in Ukraine from the um, Russian Defense Ministry. It is claimed a Hunter Biden funded, uh, founded investment fund, Rosemont Seneca Partners, which that is true. And George Soros' Open Society Foundations were directly involved in financing research facilities in Ukraine which Moscow claims were developing bioweapons. So that's from Telegram, from RT News. Again, if this is true, this is quite a game changer. So. Wow. Um, With that. Yeah, on that. (laughs) Uh, But Mark, thank you again, my man. Um, Mark Frost is an economist, professor, consultant, drummer, Eagle Scout, Marine, capitalist, Chupitanarian, and recovering libertarian. You can follow Mark on Twitter at Frosty Cash. And we're going to be taking your calls. The number is 202 um, five, I'm sorry, 202-521-1320. Back in a moment. Fault Lines. Thomas Franzak. Fault Lines. 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 Fault Lines.
Headlines. Fault Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with my co-host, Farron Franzak, coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. She's invisible right now, um, so you can't necessarily see her. Um, but she will reappear in a few minutes. But let's go to calls. The number is 202-521-1320. We have Mark from New York. Mark, what's going on, my man? How are you doing this morning? Yeah, good morning, Jamal. Uh, I, I know in the interest of time, I'm going to be as quick to my point. Um after listening to Mark Frost, I can only say, and, I, and I'm willing to challenge him on the air Uh-oh. and give him time. If they're listening to him, if you're not more perplexed about the economics, then you've got a problem. You're not really paying attention. <laughs> to combine, and I want to get into critique here. Let me be clear. Monetarily, the Fed is done. It can't do anything other than raise rates. And we have, it's this time it's different for this reason that we have a global collapse of the dollar with this, 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 these separations in the, in, the, in the global community and Russia and China combining and saying we're going to do business. The petrol dollar is done. That's understood. At least that's what the implications are. Definitely under pressure, to put it mildly, yeah. So with that collapse, we can, our fiscal ability is done as well. That's where the government spends money in economy, into the economy, into the, into the economy of the U.S., if we can't spend more money because the fiscal hawks will say it's not possible, it is not the failure necessarily of socialism. It's capitalism at the crux of this whole thing collapsing because it is built on a frail system which was supported by military might. And the only thing that makes, you, makes America's middle class unique from any other middle class, whether it's in a socialist nation or what have you, or people who profess to be, socialism is a political practice. Capitalism and other forms, that's the economic base of it. How you implement that in markets is a, is a different thing. I, I, I'm trying to be concise, but I'm going to break. Well, Mark is ideologically driven on this. I mean, like he said, he's a recovering libertarian. So he's definitely going to have a certain, let's say, view of capitalism and socialism. But we're, what we're dealing with fundamentally here is it's not the same. It is a global shift and essentially the collapse of the imperial empire. That changes everything because we've overspent in our dollars. And we told China, who has been investing in our treasury and now holds all these treasury notes, oh, we're, we're going to go after you next. The dynamics are different. And give Biden his credit where his credit to. He said under him nothing would fundamentally change because he was incompetent in the first place. But he had no intention. He's not a visionary. He was supposed to hold things stable. But what he has done in his, in his bark and his bite, his bark rather, just like a lot of these neoliberal politicians, is talk more gain than he can back up. And essentially create a, aggravated the situation economically coming off of COVID. And there's nothing they can do unless they get, get statesmanship. And that's what's lacking very much in both Republican and Democratic Party being fostered by neocons in the interest of war. I agree with that. On a war economy. I don't think, though, with him, it's a bark and a bite. I think it's a nap and a sleep. But yeah. Yeah, I agree <laughs> with the incompetence thing big time. Mark, I agree with that comment. Mark, thank you, my man. Mark from New York. We have David from South Carolina. 30 seconds, David. What's going on? Hi, good morning. Quick things echo the sentiments of the last caller. Second thing, people's in the United States and the Western world's perception on North Korea is completely screwed. There's no there's no um, sort of context for the 10 to 20 percent of the people we killed. Um, the U.S. bombs killed in North Korea. So any context that's missing is an unjust argument or unjust thing to say. 
Third thing, I'm, I mean, I'm 24. I know a lot of young people, and they fall for the Western propaganda. Agreed. Won't have as much hope as y'all do. So, uh, um, unfortunately, which is it's very unfortunate. I thank you for interviewing Mark. He had some good good things to say. Lots of questions that I had were answered. And the last caller again echoed his sentiments completely. Absolutely, David. Thank you, David from South Carolina. Um, Tarif, we're not going to be able to, 20 seconds. Tarif, what's going on, man? Oh, free joint. Married, uh, free joint signs. They got married. They got um, Stella Morris. The BBC and New York Times covered the story pretty good. So free joint signs. I'll call back tomorrow. Very Thanks cool. Thanks so Therese. much. Sorry we couldn't get you guys tomorrow on Fridays. We'll start it. We'll make more time because we're starting to get more callers. Guys, I want to thank all of you for watching. I want to thank my co-host, Farron Franzak. I want to thank you. our engineer and producer. I want to thank all the callers. We still had a couple of more. Brave. Always calling in the last two seconds of the show. And Virginia. But, and Virginia. Liz in Virginia. Yeah, and Liz. But guys, fault lines. Thomas and Franzak. My name is Jamal Thomas. Brian Franzak. We're going to see you tomorrow. Have a phenomenal day. May the good news be yours. Fault lines.